Thank you so much for tuning in to the Spiro Avenue Show. You could follow us on social media at Spiro Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also watch our full episodes and clips and highlights on YouTube. And we would appreciate it if you could hit that subscribe button for us. Anyways, thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Oh, welcome back to Spiro Avenue. I have missed you all dearly, I must say. We're trying to do one, two shows a week, but I can't always see it because I'm a busy man, as are you busy men and women out there. But I'm happy you're with me tonight or tomorrow or whenever you're watching this. This will be a good one. This will be something that hits some of my favorite topics, and we'll get to that in just a second. But first, I would be remiss if if I just somehow forgot it flew from my mind to thank our dear sponsor tonight. And it hits a lot of my favorite points as well, just like the show tonight. It's beer. It's liquor, and it's located in East Lansing. All the above at the Landshark, the Landshark Bar and Grill in East Lansing, under new ownership in January. All the good things from my days there were retained, and there's some new things as well. Check them out, thelandsharkmsu.com for specials. Check them out when you're in East Lansing. This fall is coming up very fast. Football season will be upon you. So get one of those Shark Bowls. They actually have a whole new flavor Shark Bowl. They got like the red, the blue, and a mystery third one. That's the rumor. So. Check them out. Thank you to them. The glorious support of the Spiro Avenue show, the Landshark East Lansing. Love them. Check them out. Okay, so here we go. This will be an interesting one. It's, it, you know, I like to say we're like 90, 90% sports and 10% like whatever. I mean, I'll talk about anything. I always say I'll have anybody on the show if I find them interesting. I've had criticism for having people that have been arrested for things. Uh, people that haven't paid child support have, have been on my show and people give me shit for that. How could you have this person? I've always said, I don't care. I would have Bin Laden on the show on 912. That's not the case here in terms of the guests, for the record. So let's not, let's not get away from ourselves. But in terms of the topic, I didn't think I'd be talking about the mafia on this show, but I will. So what brings the Spiro Avenue show into the mafia basket? What brought us to the mafia realm? Well, I'm going to set it up for you. So if you've been paying attention at all, unless you've been under the biggest rock in the universe, you know that there's been a little uh, action going on with Phil Mickelson and the local uh, media here in Detroit. It's been a little uncomfortable. I have friends on both sides that are throwing arrows, and it's getting a little messy. So I'm going to set the topic before we get to our guest, who is esteemed and is well-versed in both of these topics and everything that's going on. So let's set it up. The Detroit News is in, I guess, an open war with Phil Mickelson. I have not seen either side back down. It is two sides that cannot even agree to disagree. The bickering is still going on, both sides. So let's bring it back. So Phil Mickelson last week is in town to headline the Rocket Mortgage Classic. Now, I don't know what that means because I'm not a golf guy, but it sounds like it was important. So Mickelson's in town. And it's a happy story, right? He's this big figure. It's this, this local golf outing. It's a great feel-good story for the city of Detroit and surrounding areas and certainly the local golf community. And then the dark cloud known as Robert Snell comes in, according to some. Robert Snell, great reporter of the Detroit News, he comes out with this article, and this happy, uh, sweet story becomes not so happy all of a sudden. So here's the headline. We'll throw it up for our viewers out there. Lefty and Dandy Don, how a gross point bookie allegedly cheated Phil Mickelson. So this story comes out and we're, we have this backdrop of this wonderful thing going on locally and it's wonderful attention for the city of Detroit and surrounding areas. And here comes Robert Snell to spoil it all. 
And we're not going to get into the whole story in my intro, but we're going to dive deeper into it in a moment. We'll get to that. But the nut and bolts of it is Phil Mickelson, who's worth many, many millions of dollars, many years ago had a $500,000 debt. And this entered the court documents in 2007 during the trial of Detroit mobster Jack Giacalone. I think I got that right. And, you know, apparently Mickelson was making these large bets with this mobbed up bookie and the mobbed up bookie lost and couldn't pay him. And that was sort of the story in a nutshell. I mean, there's, there's more to it, but that's the nutshell version. This blew a, a top off the, the world here in the local media and the golf world. The Detroit golf scene was apoplectic about this. We're going to get to that in a second. But first, let's start with the man himself, the target of the attack, which I, I say very lightly with a quotation fingers in the air, Bill Mickelson. Sees this article while he's in town, probably seen it at the Townsend or something. And he fires back at Robert Snell openly, publicly with this tweet. So this is somebody responding originally to the Detroit News. This, uh, this lady, I think, just a member of the general public called Lori Dowdy, saying, why the heck would you run a story that is so distasteful and such old news? We want to promote our city and get these top players to return to the city of Detroit to play in the Rocket Classic. Phil Mickelson has been so gracious to the fans at the Pro-Am. Why not print that? Fail. And here's Mickelson's response. Thank you for your support. I don't understand people like Rob Snell, whose opportunistic and selfish actions prevent people from wanting to come to Detroit and help in any way they can. So that's Phil Mickelson playing the world's smallest violin for you. And that was an official shots fired at the Detroit News and their arguably top reporter uh, under their roof in Robert Snell. Naturally, this is a provincial town and an even more provincial industry who jumps in spirit avenue favorite guest frequent uh, appear on the show tony paul from the detroit news chimes in responds with this rob snell was one of the best reporters in the country nothing reported was inaccurate the story is newsworthy it's not the media's job to promote a city or event nor is our publication cynically plotting to rain on anybody's parade so you knew if you took a poke at Robert Snell, Tony, Tony Paul couldn't be that far behind. He was coming with the pitchfork, and he brought it, and he kind of hit the bullet points, right? Newsworthy. It's something that we don't owe a debt to you to cover this up. It is newsworthy. It's going to be reported, okay? So Tony Paul fires back. Then piggybacking off that, another Spiro Avenue guest who's been here three different times, Chad Livengood. I think the best journalist in the state right now. So this, this tweet goes out of here's some scenes from the Rocket Mortgage Classic, and it's Phil Mickelson walking around the course. And Chad Livengood tweets out, is that Phil Mickelson before or after he got done rage tweeting at Robert Snell from the Detroit News for doing his job? So now Chad Livengood's involved. Well, you knew Phil wasn't going to take that shit. Here comes Phil Mickelson firing back at our good friend Chad Livengood, who, who I love. So Mickelson fires back with this. I haven't tweeted anything yet. I've only responded to others' tweets. You and Rob Snell do what you need to do, report something from over 20 years ago, and I'll do what I need to. Let everyone know why I won't be back to Detroit. So this is getting very petty very, very, very fast, and certainly I think from Phil's side more than anything, but whatever, I don't want to editorialize yet. So Mickelson's fired up. He says, in so many words, I'm not coming back to Detroit because of this Robert Snell article. And then who chimes in? Another Spiro Avenue former guest, Mike Sullivan, Metro Detroit golfer guy, Brand 25 Media. He, he fires back with a tweet as well. Carlos Monterey of the Free Press, Free, Free Press reports what uh, 
Mickelson had just said, saying, you know, we asked Mickelson point blank, hey, are you really not coming back to Detroit next year? And that is confirmed by this Monterey's tweet. Sullivan jumps in and says, this is unreal. Way to go. Way to go, guys. You blew it. You ruined it for everybody. Then who chimes in next with the counterpoint? Another Spiro Avenue former guest, Jim Costa, our most recent guest, in fact. Quote, Phil took a story that could have been him versus Detroit News and instead made it a story about him versus Detroit, golf in Michigan, and charity. You don't have to like the timing of a story, but it was factual. To hold it against the city of Detroit and not come back is childish. So this is just, this is crazy. It, it is a media royal rumble of all former Spiro Avenue guests, by the way, which is just hilarious. I, I got friends uh, all over the place. Look, I have to admit, I didn't know what the hell was going on with this. I'm not a golf guy. I, like, I read the story, but like, I don't know how newsworthy this is. I feel like all of these millionaires probably had a bookie somewhere. I, mean, I, I don't know. I'm not saying it wasn't newsworthy. It probably was. I just didn't have any strong opinions on it, but I knew something happened because apparently I was the only one in the state of Michigan that didn't have a, a very strong opinion on this. So I, I don't know what was going on. This was like the Hutus and the Tootsies here with, with the, the media and the sort of golf bro and, and Phil Mickelson crowd. Again, friends on both sides. I don't know. I didn't know what was going on. I actually openly said I didn't know what was going on, but I wanted to know. And I got lucky because that brought me to a guest that came to me and said, hey, I'm going to educate your ass on this if you want to hear it. And I said, I want to hear it. So we had a good conversation. And now I bring him before you. He's Scott M. Bernstein, best-selling crime author, investigative journalist, recognized expert on the mafia in America. I couldn't think of a better person to bring in for this discussion. A guy with a journalist background, author background, mafia background. The original story was a mafia story. You know about this. Other than maybe Robert Snell himself, mm -hmm. I can't think of a better person to sit across from me right now. I'm just, I'm happy to have you here. First of all, just welcome to the Spirit Avenue show and thank you for coming. Thanks, Justin. I've been uh, a big fan from afar, uh, you know, seeing what you've been doing and, and consuming your content. And I'm, I'm, I'm honored to, you know, be able to make my debut uh, on your show and make a big splash in what was just a, a, an issue and a situation that I did not anticipate going off the rails as quickly as it did. And uh, there's a lot to unpack here. I would say almost immediately everyone on both sides of this issue lost all proportionality, perspective, and context. Like it was all just thrown out the window. And like you said, it was a, a battle royale um, of opinions and hot takes and um, shooting darts at each other on both sides of this thing. It, how it, it went viral, but it, it was like it went viral on steroids. And I, I like I said, I didn't anticipate it. And then as it was going on, I'm kind of, you know, observing it and being like, wow, this thing got out of hand really quickly. Um, and again, nobody had any contact. No, nobody on either side of this thing had any contact. So I, I hope that I can come in here and at least for, for your, uh, you know, the fans of, of, of Spiro Avenue and people that are, are, are following this show, I can at least, you know, educate them or give them some context that maybe has been lacking in all of this uh, mudslinging. Yeah, we definitely need it because I have like, there's smart people. There's people I like on both sides. I knew something about this was intriguing, interesting, whatever you want to call it. When Chad Livengood from Cranes, who is the most stoic, just a cold blooded assassin, doesn't like criticize anybody. It's just like, fact, here's the fact, fact, here's the fact, 
prints it. Here you go, Cranes. Okay, what's my next story? That's Chad. Chad's been here three times. I think he's the best reporter in town, best reporter in the state. But Chad's a lot of things. He's not a guy that's known to emote. So for Chad Livengood to hop on his computer or smartphone or whatever and be like, hey, is this Phil Mickelson before he was bitching or after? Like, hey, shit. Like, there's some nerves that have been hit here for a lot of people. There's people, like, this is a crazy and story. I, and a ton of issues were being or are being conflated here, in my opinion. They're just issues that maybe don't have anything to do with each other are being kind of tossed in together in this weird, uh, you know, uh, washing machine of, of issues and opinions. Um, and again, I think, I just think we've lost a lot of proportionality and perspective here. Uh, I'll stand up for Rob Snell. I know Rob, I think Rob is the best, probably the best him and George, um, Hunter are probably the two best crime reporters in Detroit. George is at the free press and, and Rob is at the Detroit news. Rob has done some amazing work these, these last couple of years, um, on his crime reporting. Uh, he did a, a, a an, um, slight, digre- uh, slight digression here. He did a story about a year or two ago about the Seven Mile Bloods, um, which was called Death on Instagram, which was like a five-part series all about um, street gang warfare going on in Detroit right now and how all these um, street gang members were posting hit lists on One of on the most social media. pieces I've ever read, yeah, by the on way. on social media, I, I, Facebook. Uh, and I believe he, he won some awards for that. Just great, great reporting. Um, and again, I think we need to put things in perspective. And I don't, I, I think everyone was, was going off the deep end saying that this story came out of nowhere. This story was old news being repackaged. I, I heard some people making the comparisons to what ESPN was doing. Uh, to Izzo and D'Antonio two years ago, you know, repackaging news that they had or that had already had been out in, you know, in the ether 10 years ago and bringing it up and pretending like it was new. This wasn't old news. This happened almost 20 years ago. It was brought up in a court case 14 years ago, but it was never reported. So you can't say it's old news. It ha- yes, it happened a while ago, but it's not old news because it's never been reported. Well, and that goes for anything, right? I mean, like, if we had a smoking gun evidence of uh, some guy shooting JFK, there's some video that was in a vault somewhere or something, that's going to be newsworthy even yeah. though it happened 60 years ago because it's, it's new information. Like, it happened a long time ago, but it's new information. This is, for us, new information, yeah. right? And let's flesh out also some of the uh, additional context here. If you've been following Rob Snell's reporting in the Detroit News since April, he's been doing a series of articles on Jack Jackaloni, the reputed mob boss of Detroit. Um, if people know anything about the mob in Detroit, they know the name Jackaloni. Uh, Jack's uncle and father were the infamous Tony Jack and Billy Jack, uh, probably the, the, the two most notorious mob figures in, in Detroit history. They're tied to the Jimmy Hoffa kidnapping and murder, most likely uh, were the perpetrators in that. So, we'll get there. Right. Save, save that. So, so Jack Jackaloni definitely has a, a reputation that precedes him anywhere he goes. Uh, hadn't, really been, hadn't really been front and center in the media since that 2007 racketeering trial that uh, he went to, um, uh, went to a jury trial and was acquitted. Um, but Rob Snell's been doing some reporting um, on Jack Jackaloni's current legal issues, which are tied to a tax case 
um, where he owes over a half a million dollars in back taxes dating back to the early 2000s, hasn't paid an, an income tax, I guess, since 2003, um, and then was in the news in non-mob-related headlines in April because his daughter, uh, a West Bloomfield graduate, uh, Chantel Giacalone, uh, in, a, in a just an epic tragedy, uh, has been in a vegetative state since 2013, from a peanut allergy that she um, uh, she, she she ate a she was allergic to peanuts and I think she she ate a pretzel that had a peanut in it or a brownie that had a peanut on it peanut in it and sent her into uh, anaphylactic shock and the ambulance that came to she was at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas and the ambulance that came to uh, take her to the hospital wasn't equipped with the stuff that the ambulance had to be equipped with under the law uh, so in April a jury verdict came down in a civil case awarding the Jacqueline family $30 million. Um, it got huge national headlines. It was in people magazine. It was in the New York times, um, uh, Las Vegas, uh, review journal, Miami Herald, uh, Jack, Jack only actually did an interview with people magazine. Now he had a tax case that dated back to 2017. His judge, uh, us district court judge, George Stee saw this $30 million verdict. And also saw the fact that Jack Jackaloni hadn't paid one dime of the half a million dollars that he owed in back taxes that had been sitting there unpaid for four years. And Judge Stee called Mr. Jackaloni in front of him uh, in late April, uh, early May, or maybe it was first week of May, held him in contempt of court and threatened to imprison him if he didn't start paying his taxes. George, sorry, George, uh, Rob Snell began reporting on that. Um, it was a front page story. Um, I believe in early June or late May, early June, um, there was another story written about Dandy Dandy Serrano, who was a major figure in this whole soap opera, um, who was actually a, a very compelling, um, character in the history of Detroit. I've heard him described as a, uh, Hugh Hefner meets Ace Rosting from Casino meets Tony Stark uh, from the Marvel Iron Man uh, movies. He, he was a millionaire playboy with a trust fund who was supposedly a genius um, that always dressed immaculately and drove the best cars and wore the best clothes and dated the finest women, but was also a major, major, major high roller, uh, alleged to be the biggest gambler maybe in Detroit history. Uh, there's rumors that he put a million-dollar bet uh, on the Super Bowl back in the 90s. Uh, so this guy was allegedly, not alleged, I shouldn't say not, not allegedly, this guy was the go-between uh, for Phil Mickelson and the Detroit mob. Uh, so Rob Snell had been writing about De Serrano, had been writing about Jackie Giacalone, uh, and I don't want to speak for Rob, but I'm going to presume that from his reporting on De Serrano and Giacalone from digging through court files and FBI documents and uh, interviews uh, done by the federal government, he came across uh, this debt, which by the way, I, I'm not trying to, you know, pat myself on the back here or anything, but I had this story about 10 years ago. I knew about, I've known about this for a while. So this I, is all your fault then. Right. <laughs> this, that this happened. I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't see a, uh, I didn't really see an end to report it. It okay. would have been kind of just random for me to report it 10 years ago. I want to push back ago. a little bit yeah. for, for the other side of it, because 
to me, it was, I think we agree. I, I don't have a problem with the reporting, but here's where I, I don't think it's as egregious to criticize it as some. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You said Robert Snell's been covering this for months, and this is, this is just a continuation of the series that he's already been working on. Factual, fair, no problem. How many of those prior stories had anything to do with Phil Mickelson or even mentioned the name Phil Mickelson? None. And this one, he's in this long series of stories about this topic. Is it a coincidence? I think you're asking the audience to make a big leap. Is it a coincidence that the Phil Mickelson piece of this puzzle that he's been building just happened to be slid into the puzzle the same week that Phil Mickelson is here? Of course not. So, so you agree that this was a they timing timed it. I'm sure for, they did. for for clicks, essentially. Yes, probably to, to maximize. Which so that criticism is not unfair then, because we agree that that was again. I think, but okay, but I think you're kind of splitting hairs about. I can agree with that. If you're going to be the stuffy journalist, though, right. and I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about like everyone yeah, yeah, going yeah. off. Like, if you're going to be the stuffy journalist and say, you know, with my reporting is true and it's honest, and it, this is, I would never have any type of agenda. I'm just reporting what I think is newsworthy. It's tough to resolve this other component of it. It's tough to reconcile where your motivation for the timing of this release, if not the fact that you released it at all was at least in part by, not that it's yours to admit, but by your own admission that you think, and what I think is self-evident, I understand why people are saying, like, look, maybe if you reported this a month before Mickelson showed up, like, we wouldn't like it, but it would go over. It does seem a little like you were at Phil Mickelson's expense and disregarding the potential implications in terms of the event and the attention being driven away from good causes or whatever. It does seem like it's a valid criticism to say, like, come on, maybe not that day. And I'm not saying, let me be clear, I'm not saying if I was Phil Mickelson, I wouldn't feel ambushed. I would feel ambushed. I haven't been in, I haven't been in Detroit, I guess, for 15 yeah. years or something. I come back to your city. I'm trying to do good by your city. I'm trying to come and help the Rocket Mortgage Classic. I'm coming to to show off my stuff in front of all the, the great golf fans here in Detroit. And I land in Detroit, and the morning I wake up, I'm granted I'm 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 uh greeted by a front page story tying me to the mafia. Like I understand you're you're not gonna be thrilled about that. I think my issue is he's he he wanted to take it out against the whole city of Detroit. Oh, I agree with like, the response. Your, 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 your response beef should be with Snell and the Detroit News. And if you wanted to say, hey, listen, if you wanted to pull a Michael Jordan, um if, if people know what I'm referring to, Michael Jordan, after he was very upset with Sports Illustrated for an article that they did back in 1994. And he just said, listen, I'll, I'll never do another interview with Sports Illustrated. And he hasn't. So, you know, I would have had no issue if if Phil Mickelson just said, hey, listen, I'm not thrilled about it. I think it was a low blow and I'll never talk to Detroit News again. And then you just yeah. move on. I agree. He, with gave, that. he gave the story legs. Like yes. not just legs, but like uh, you know, like, just dumping just, that fuel yeah, just you know, lighting a match and and yeah. throwing and, and you know, dousing the the fairway with kerosene and just throwing a match on it. You know, every time he had a um, a microphone put in his face in the four days of the tournament was going on, he couldn't shut up about this thing and and trying to play the victim card and then trying, in my opinion, then trying to play God with this whole. Uh, well, I'll come back if you get 50,000 signatures and all every one of those 50,000 people do a act of kindness and, you know, do some community service. It's like, well, Phil, how, how are you going to verify that everyone, you know, uh, you know, I, I went and picked up garbage on the side of the, the highway and I took a picture of myself and I, I tweeted it to you. Now can now can you come back next year? 
Yeah, I get it. I, I, I do get both sides. I'm just saying I, I see both. I don't think the criticism is wholly without merit. Like, well, here's, here's a little like distinguishing thing. If Robert Snell had it handed to him two days before on really good authority that this was the case, two days before Mickelson arrives for the, the class, Okay, no, it's newsworthy. No Maybe problem. he did. I don't know. I'm assuming that. Well, I I agree. I don't know. Right. But my assumption is what the appearance is. He had this. Maybe it was ten days ago. Yeah. He's done something since this was on his desk, mm-hmm. other than this. And he tucked it in the drawer. Again, this is what it looks like. I'm not saying this. This is what happened because I don't know. I don't know his work process. I don't know whose sources are. Or whatever. But it looks like the appearance is. It's a mighty coincidence if it wasn't this. He had it, tucked it in a drawer, circled the date on his calendar. What day is Mickelson getting here? Okay, June 30th or whatever. Okay, that's the, the day the story runs. I, well, I don't know it's if it's either that or it's a huge coincidence. There's no door through. We're just talking about, uh, if we're just talking about, I know this is a little bit inside baseball journalism, but we're talking about order of operation. He wouldn't really be in control of when a story ran. It would be editorial. That's fair, but it's a criticism of the Detroit News. Oh, yes. No, no, I'm just explaining. explaining, Like, Robert Snell wouldn't be like, okay, I'm going to run this story now on June 30th. That's fair. It'd be his editor being like, they'd have a, they'd be, again, we're playing, uh, you know, make-believe here, but let's just say they had a meeting on on June 15th, and uh, Snell says to his editor, hey, you know, I found this this Phil Mickelson stuff uh, in the Jackie Jacqueloni transcript. The editor would be like, oh, isn't Mickelson coming into town in two weeks? Well, maybe we'll just save that for that. Well, I think something like that happened. Yeah. Again, it's speculation, but it's, right. it's, it's not even informed speculation, but it, it's an educated guess based on common sense. Like, I, the only other way is that this is the time it was a huge coincidence. So, I mean, we, we can put a button on sort of the uh, journalistic responsibility or lack thereof or whatever with this, but I just want you to say or disagree with fine, whatever you think. Don't you think the criticism has some merit? No, Don't you what, get why Mike Sullivan is mad? But that's why I said that. On both sides of this thing, yeah. everyone's lost perspective, context, and proportionality. I, you're right. There's, I think there is some merit to to being upset with the timing of the story and and feeling assaulted uh, if you're Mickelson. Well, I definitely have. if you're Mickelson, but that I don't care about Phil. I mean, like the objective. I'm not the one that was attacked, but I'm watching that guy get attacked, and I have a moral problem with it. Does the person standing from afar? Have a, like the Mike Sullivan say, oh, like great job, thanks a lot. Have any legitimate reason to have some no, yes, uh, pause? They, no, there's I, a, no, no I think there's a, a kernel of a, kernel, of, a, kernel. a little more than a kernel, a kernel of yeah. of, of merit there. Yeah. Uh, I, I and again, I I don't have an issue with Mickelson being upset by it, but he 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 played the diva card so extensively over those four days, like it, it was like the story wouldn't die because Phil wouldn't shut up about it. Yeah, I agree. He made it a lot worse. And the other thing that I know you and I agree on, by the way, like in the battle at the end of the day, I tend to err on the side of, okay, is the story true that the journalist wrote? Like, is it newsworthy? Kind of like the Tony Paul checklist, like newsworthy, it's true, whatever. Like I err on the side of, okay, it's fine. Like I'm not, I don't err on the side of protecting people from unflattering stories that are true and properly vetted. I just think there's a little more nuance than has been presented, which, you know, I think you've you've conceded. Yeah. And then I also want (laughs) to, Throw this out there. And I don't know if this is neither here nor there, but to me, it's like for Mickelson, I, I understand you don't want you don't want to be tied to the mafia. I, I understand that. So I caveat it with that. But what's the news flash here? 
that Phil Mickelson's a gambler, that he's a the high roller that likes to to, to engage in high stakes gambling. Like Phil Mickelson himself admits that. Like Phil Mickelson, I think you know that's part of Phil Mickelson's persona is that he's a gambler. He doesn't. I'm never. I, I, he's been pretty open about that in, in his career. There's something about that which you said up top, though. I mean, you said that you understand, and then you said you kind of don't understand. It is the mafia tie because that yeah. is it, right. But then again, that that I think there's some naivete from the general public. Oh yeah. I mean, anybody that's betting with a bookie <laughs> outside of maybe in your fraternity house betting with your yeah. brother living down the <laughs> yeah. living down the hall, he's not mobbed up. But anyone in any major city that's betting with a bookie, you're betting with the mob. I'll tell you some Chicago stories off Mike. Go yeah. on. <laughs> but, so, I mean, people don't yeah. want to think about I, that. The guy classmates. behind the guy behind the guy behind the guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if they're not, like you said, even if they're not in the mafia, like they're one degree of separation yeah. away, they're a phone call away. Right. But I, the thing that I definitely agree with you on, and for the record, if I had to pick between the Hutus and the Tutsis, I would say Robert Snell's fine. The Detroit News is fine. But I understand the other side. I don't think it's like they're insane. No, it's not blasphemy. Now. Yeah. It's, and, but there's plenty. Believe me, I'm nothing but strong opinions on this show. I don't find a whole lot of nuance in things. I, I'm pretty strong on a lot of things. This, I do see both sides. And I, I just, just wanted to lay it out. I just got I, my emotions really ebbed and flowed through this thing because I went from, oh, it's not that big of a deal to, oh, I can kind of understand why Phil's upset. Uh, Phil's taking this thing to a degree that is so insane that then I flipped the other way. And I was like, he's just playing this huge victim card for, for, for the four days of the tournament. And then again, I, you know, in my opinion, playing God with this whole, I'll come back if you do this, 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 and this. Yeah. yeah. So like he's, extor- no, and I understand it's not the same thing as extorting money out of someone, but like he's extorting good deeds out of people to, to, to come back. Well- to, to golf for you. I likened him to Santa Claus. Yeah. Like he had the thing of like that. He's making his list of who's naughty and who's right. nice. Like he, I mean, you said so he, sanctimonious. That's, that was, I totally agree. I was, I tweeted that out. I was like, this guy, this guy's acting like he's Santa Claus. Like get over yourself, man. Right. Like if you want to come back, come back. If you don't want to come back, don't come back. But <laughs> this whole little dance that he was doing. And again, I, I have just like Justin said, I got, I got friends and colleagues on, on all sides of this. So I, I do a 360 on this. I love Mike Sullivan. I honestly do. I've known Mike since he was 14 years old. Um, I think he's a rising star in the city of Detroit. Um, but I just didn't like the idea that we were, we were painting Phil as this huge victim. Like he somehow got unjustly swept up into the me too movement or the black lives matter movement. Like again, he himself admits this is true. <laughs> so the Sullivan Some thing that we pulled, I mean, we, he had a lot of them, but the, I pulled the way to go thing. I thought it reminded me of like being in sixth grade where it's like, you know, the teacher like gives you an extra homework assignment because two kids can't yeah. shut up or but something. No, no. Way to go, guys. Like, yeah, right. it was but I, what I will say is I think uh, Sullivan did have his fingers on the pulse of the golfing community in Detroit, if, if, at least judging Finger by so- the pulse. He, he had the shocks going to the yeah, chest right. there. I if mean, you're judging by social media, he was the voice of the people. I mean, the, the outpouring of support for Phil really blew my mind. I mean, I guess it's a credit to what an icon Phil Mickelson is. And let me also say, I'm a fan of Phil Mickelson. I'm not a huge golf fan, but I, I follow the sport. Um, my dad is a, a, a huge golfer. My grandpa was a club champion. Uh, my dad coaches. 
I can remember as a 12 year old or 13 year old sitting with my grandpa watching Phil Mickelson's first pro tournament and my grandpa being like, this is the next guy. This is the next big guy. I can remember that. I can remember where I was. So like, I've definitely, I'm a fan of Phil Mickelson. I've followed his whole career. Uh, It's amazing that what he's doing and playing this type of golf into his early fifties. He's on the Mount Rushmore uh, of, of all time great golfers. You know, when you're talking about the, the, last 10 years of the 20th century and the first 20 years of the 21st century, it's him and Tiger Woods. Uh, so I, I just, I, I did not appreciate, I guess, this notion that, you know, he had this, this, he, he was so aggrieved that, you know, like he was, I, I hate to even throw this out there, but like he was wrongly accused of rape or, or, or wrongly accused of being a bigot or it, like, it was none of that. It was, he was rightly accused of being a big gambler. Was there a single person out there? Because if there is, I didn't find one, but you, you know more than I do. Was there a single person out there that was like, wait a minute, Bill Mickelson was betting with a bookie at the tie to the mob? Mm-hmm. Like, get, get him out of here, cancel the tournament. Like, no, nobody who cares. Was, who, like, who is the Helen Lovejoy? Won't somebody please think of the children on that one? Because I, I mean, look. There's, I can find an idiot that has any opinion you could possibly imagine. I couldn't find one that was outraged, which now, is why he was reacting so stupidly. Now, I'll, I'll also say that, you know, when you reach that level, when you're at Phil Mickelson's level of celebrity, people are going to be searching for skeletons in your closet. And if you're, you know, gambling, you know, talk to Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah. It's like... He is the, you know, in some ways, he is the Michael Jordan or one of the Michael Jordans of golf. So, you know, it's not the exact same thing. But, you know, last year with the um, the, the Last Dance, which was, a, a, I really enjoyed that, that uh, 10, 10 part documentary or five part documentary, I think it was. It was 10. 10 part documentary yeah. on Michael Jordan. You know, they went into, you know, Jordan's gambling habits and how he was running around uh, with two pretty big you know, narcotics kingpins from North Carolina and getting into debt with them. And uh, he actually perjured himself when he was first um, questioned by the FBI. He actually had to leave uh, his team on opening night, 93, I believe it was either 92, 93 or 93, 94. No, it was 92, 93. Cause he was out of the league at that point, 93, 94, but the opening game for the 92, 93 season, he had to leave the team hotel to go testify at a, at a federal narcotics racketeering trial. And then he flew back and opened the season that night. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it kind of goes with the territory. If you're at that level of celebrity and you are running around with people that, that have questionable character, you know, it's just, it's going to become fodder for, for the news. So you said both sides of this got off the rails. And we've talked about how the criticism of the story got off the rails. Is there any way the Detroit News got off the rails? The reporters defending the Detroit News? What did, what no, did they miss? If but I think, I mean, again, Ryan says 2020. You can Monday morning quarterback this thing. Maybe we shouldn't have dropped this thing the day that Phil got here. Maybe we shouldn't have. I thought part of the issue, I guess, that I might have had if I was Phil was the way that the headline and the way that the. The, the paper made it out lefty versus dandy Don. Like it was like, a, like it was a tale of the tape of like a, you know, a prize fight. Um, and then with the nicknames, it, it just make, kind of makes it look more mobbed up. 
uh, and, and look more nefarious than it is. Well, and it looks like it's more about grabbing the attention than it is like, look, this is yeah. newsworthy. We're the honest and above board maybe, purveyors of yeah. the news. Maybe it didn't need to be on the front page. Maybe it didn't need to be situated the way it was with that type of headline. Um, I'll, I'll do a, a, a very slight digression into a, a similar situation that I had as a reporter early in my career. There's actually a ton of parallels. Uh, when I first started working at the Oakland Press in the late 2000s, uh, I was doing a weekly series called Scene of the Crime, where I would recount a famous crime from Oakland County history that, that was celebrating an anniversary. And it was the 30-year anniversary of Tim Allen's co- cocaine bust. Um, Tim Allen, the, you know, from Home, Home Improvement, Improvement yeah. um, is, a, is a Metro Detroit native. And, uh, you know, he, he had to go to prison for, for three years for, for dealing um, wholesale cocaine. And he got caught at the Kalamazoo Airport with a couple of kilos of drugs back in 1978. And at the time, he was actually facing a life sentence uh, and ended up doing three years. And then he got out of prison and then he went to Hollywood and became a superstar. And my newspaper decided to put it on the front page of the newspaper. I think there were some people that looked at it as like, this had just happened. There was some context lost. And Tim Allen and his mother blew their top. And I got called into a meeting with my editor. And on a, um, on a uh, you know, uh, on a conference call, or, you know, uh, they, they, uh, they, they put Tim Allen and Tim Allen's mom on the phone with me. And I was How being, old was he that his mom was involved? No, this was like 10 years ago. His mom was probably around 60, 70. Or, Why is his mom involved? Because she, uh, she still lives here and Tim lives in L.A. I can't imagine like, hey, this story about Justin Spiro pisses me off. I'm calling my mom. No, I think the mom called Tim to let Tim know that the story had run in Detroit. Yeah. And then the mom called the Oakland Press and then Tim came into the conference call and I would tell my mom I'll handle it. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, sorry. And it was kind of like, well, for all the things we do for Detroit and all, you know, why are you bringing this up? And I was like, did I report anything inaccurate? Was there anything in there that was wrong? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, then you should really be talking to editorial about putting it on the front page and all. I mean, that's not me. I wrote the story. I'm like, do I think it should have been on the front page? Probably not. But again, as a reporter, so I, I know that's, we're getting into some. I want to hear nuance. more about this Tim Allen conversation because <laughs> that interests me. So Tim, was he like yelling? He was, was he... mad. Him and his, his mom was more yelling. Tim was more like, I just don't understand. I've done so much for this area and I just don't understand why you would write it. And, and it, I said, I said that it was part of a series. We write something every week about an anniversary of a crime. He didn't say like F you and hang up or anything. No. Yeah. But, but my editor did pull the story from online. They wouldn't, they didn't retract it. They didn't write a retraction because there was nothing to retract, but they pulled it from online. And I, I kind of had a hissy fit like, on principle because you're, like, you're letting the source. Yeah. Your right, story. Right. Dictate the, right. Yeah. That, that has its own uh, issues there. Well, man, I, I could talk about this stuff for like six hours. There's so much more I want to talk to you about. This will be like a, a soft, uh, easy transition to something. I just want to ask you point mm-hmm. blank. Because here's where I was going with this mentally when I was getting into the story, prepping for your appearance tonight. I'm thinking about this. Okay. The, dealing with the mafia, dealing with bookies with deep pockets, Detroit mafia story. Phil Mickelson has no ties to Detroit other than when he passes through like last week. If Phil Mickelson 
has this connection. A national figure, not local, has a connection with a local mobster for large sums of money. Begs the question, what Detroit athletes, if any, are involved with this mobster or a different mobster? Uh, you know, if it was such a big story for Phil Mickelson, what if, like, I'm making this up, like Barry Sanders had a big debt. Like, to what, even if you don't name names, I don't, I don't want to get you in trouble. No, but. I have no issue. I've written about um, the Detroit mobs ties to the various um, pro sports franchises in the city quite extensively. Um, you can tie them to all four pro sports teams in some way, shape, or form in the history of those pro sports franchises. Um, a lot of it is a long time ago. Uh, this is the most recent in terms of a, a celebrity having any interaction with the Detroit Organized Crime Group, at least in my research. Uh, but again, I want to be clear and give context. Phil was not coming into Detroit to place these bets. Phil was making the bets in Las Vegas, uh, where Dandy Don D. Serrano was um, stationed in between Las Vegas and Detroit. He was going back and forth. So Phil was putting the bets through D. Serrano. D. Serrano was then. I, another thing, I know this is inside baseball. All the, the reports on this are referring to Don D. Serrano as a bookie. I wouldn't categorize Don D. Serrano as a bookie. And I know that, again, this is splitting hairs. Don D. Serrano was brokering the bets. So Phil was putting the bets in with D. Serrano. And then, and my, from, from my research, D. Serrano was then booking the bets through Jackie Jackaloni and Alan Hilf, who was Alan the General Hilf, uh, biggest gambling figure uh, of the last 50, 60 years in Detroit, uh, most powerful Jewish mobster. Um, in Detroit since the Purple Gang from Prohibition. Jackie Jacqueline's best friend, a top advisor, died back in 2014. But um, until, you know, between the early 70s and 2014, there was nobody bigger in gambling in, in the state of Michigan than Alan Helf. Uh, he was known as one of the uh, best handicappers in the country, uh, was one of the biggest bookmakers in the country, in addition to being the biggest bookmaker in Michigan. And, and D. Serrano was booking those bets through health. He was brokering. Don was not the bookie. Well, even, though, yeah, I mean, even if it was years past and this isn't happening at all now, I have to think that if Mickelson was doing it, there has to have been some of that. Okay, activity. so let, let, Is you there want, a Pete Rose story? That's yeah, let's do, I'll do, I'll do the around the horn here. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll go from uh, least to biggest. Uh, Detroit Red Wings back in the 1940s, uh, the Red Wings themselves were not involved in this scandal, but two former Red Wings uh, who eventually went to the Boston Bruins. It was actually the, the biggest gambling scandal in NHL history. I believe it was 1948, and there was a Detroit mob figure who was Syrian um, named James Tamer. They called him Jimmy Eyes. Jimmy Eyes would eventually go on to own a Las Vegas casino um, as a front for the Detroit Mafia. He owned the Aladdin Casino and eventually was convicted of being a front and for skimming money and had to go to prison. Um, his brother-in-law was George George. If you're an East Sider, I'm sure you know about George George Park. Um, it's a park named after George George, and George George was Jimmy Tamer's brother-in-law. Uh, Jimmy Tamer was fixing NHL games um, with two former Detroit Red Wings that were with the Boston Bruins, and they got caught, and it, the, both these, uh, these two players, I'm blanking on their names, um, were suspended for, for life from the NHL. And it was, 
that the the conspiracy was based in Detroit. Jimmy Tamer had met these guys while they were Red Wings. A lot of the uh, Red a lot of the Red Wings back at that in that day in the 30s and 40s were just like a lot of the athletes were were rubbing elbows with with organized crime figures. I know Jack Adams, who was the head coach back then, was known to socialize with with a lot of mob guys. Really? Yeah. It's interesting because the, the Coach of the Year Award is named after the guy. Yes, right. And right. the guy was mobbed up. Yeah. Like, do you know um, or recall how they fix games? I mean, what did they fire? I wrote, a, sto- I wrote a story about it. I'll, I'll uh, when, I get off, when we get off the air, I'll send you the story. I, I, I should have done some more research before this story. But I, I, I break it all down in a story I wrote. Okay, yeah, I want to check and the that two, out. And the, uh, the two players were actually pretty prominent. Uh, I believe one of them was, a, was an all-star. One of them was a – they were both you know, kind of high profile at, the, like at the time. Some sports are easier than others. Like pitching would be easy in baseball. Like you could just throw gopher balls and just get clubbed around. That, so if you're the pitcher, that would be easy. Like basketball, if you're the star, I can just – my shot can be off that night. Like hockey's kind of tough. Like football – Yeah, I have no idea how they did it. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Uh, then we can move to the Detroit Tigers. Not a ton of stuff. Um, Hank Greenberg was very close friends with the Purple Gang, uh, which was the Jewish Mafia, probably the most notorious organized crime group in Detroit history, even more so than the Italians. Uh, they're definitely more iconic. You know, Elvis Presley was name-checking them in songs. Um, and uh, Hank Greenberg actually went up to... Marquette, I believe, uh, where there's a state prison or a federal prison. I'm not, but he went up there and played a, a a charity softball game because the purples that were locked up there requested that he went up there, and he actually wrote about it in his autobiography. Um, and then you get to that late '60s era. Uh, obviously, they won the World Series in '68. Danny McLean won his 31 games. But in 1967, they were in a pennant chase, and the, the, the season came down to the last weekend of the year. Boston ended up winning the, um, the American League. Back then, there were no divisions. It was just American League, National League, and the winner went to the World Series. There was no playoff. Uh, and it went down to the final week of the season, and they ended up not winning the, the pennant that year. They won the pennant the year after. But Denny McClain missed about three weeks of the pennant chase. Uh, in August, and he missed that time with a broken toe. Uh, the rumors, I've been able to confirm some of those rumors, was that he had a debt to the Jackaloni crew, uh, specifically Jack Jackaloni's dad, Billy Jackaloni, and there was a altercation uh, on Lake St. Clair where there was a party going on a boat and Denny McLean was there and he didn't realize that Billy Jackaloni was also going to be there. And from what I heard from people that were present, um, Denny McLean was from Chicago and Billy Jackaloni came up to him and said, I, I don't know how they do things in Chicago, fat boy, but in Detroit, we pay our debts. And then he stomped on his foot and broke his toe. That's a believable story. I had heard the toe story, not how it happened, though. Yeah. That's the only thing you've said about these mafia stories yeah. that actually I have heard. But. Uh, and then we get into the kind of the, the nittier, grittier stuff. Um, with the Detroit Lions, you had allegations of uh, point shaving in the uh, uh, 50s and early 60s. In fact, Bobby Lane, who's the all-time greatest quarterback in Detroit Lion history 
was traded, uh, this is a, a really a little known fact, was traded from the Lions uh, to Pittsburgh. And uh, he kind of made a famous comment as, as he was leaving the city about kind of put a curse. I shouldn't say kind of. He put a curse on the city be like, you guys aren't going to win anything for another 50 years. Now, we're going on, what, you know, 65 years yeah. now. Um, but if you do, I did some FOIA requests and I got my hand on some league documents and some federal documents. The NFL forced the Detroit Lions to trade Bobby Lane because they believed he was shaving points with the Detroit mob. And they said, we need, you need to get him out of Detroit, away wow. from these guys. Um, no, I've never heard that. Yeah. And they were all posted up uh, every night at the old Fox and Hound uh, restaurant on uh, Long Lake and Woodward. Um, the Detroit Lions practice facility at that time was at Cranbrook. That's right. So Fox and Hound was right down the street. And Fox and Hound at that time was owned by, so Alan Hilfe from 1970 to 2014 was the biggest bookmaker in Detroit. From 1950 to 1970, the biggest bookmaker in Detroit was a guy named Donnie Dice Dawson, who owned the Fox and Hound. Um, and Donnie Dice uh, had started as a ball boy for the Detroit Lions as a young kid. He got to know a lot of these. I think he came from money, um, eventually bought the Fox and Hound, and all the Detroit Lions were hanging there all the time. There were a lots of suspicions, allegations that there was point shaving going on. Um, Eventually, Alex Karras, who's a Hall of Famer, was on television when I was a kid. He was on Webster, uh, was in Blazing Saddles, uh, was actually suspended from the league for a whole year because of his gambling, because of his rubbing elbows with the Jackaloni brothers, as well as uh, the Corrado brothers, who are another uh, tandem of, of mob guys that ran Greektown. Uh, there was something that was known as the party bus, which was, uh, you know, the, the road trips back then, uh, w there weren't as many plane trips. Uh, they were, you know, going around the Midwest, uh, you know, to Cleveland, to Chicago, to Green Bay, and the Jackalones and the Crados would put together these party buses where there would be girls and gambling and drugs and alcohol as a way to get people to the game. And then they would drive back to Detroit and going to the game, there would be no Detroit Lions because they'd be preparing for the game. After the game, a lot of these guys would, would eschew going back on the team plane or the team bus and instead would jump on the Jack Loney's party bus. Uh, I can't blame them by the sounds of it. <laughs> yeah. hey, what was that list again? It was like booze, women, drugs, drugs gambling. gambling. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and then Alex Karras also uh, had ownership in the Lind LAC. Actually, uh, another piece of uh, trivia that people might not know, first ever sports bar, uh, invented the concept of the sports bar, wow. um, has, been has been torn down now for, I think, 15 years, but used to be on the uh, corner of Cass and Michigan Avenue, just a, a classic old school dive bar that uh, a lot of celebrities and athletes would hang out at. Karis had a, a ownership stake in it, and there was a mob uh, book being run out of that restaurant. You combine that with the party bus, with the allegations of point shaving and Karras and Paul Horning, another Hall of Famer from Green Bay, were both suspended, I believe it was the 1962 or 1963 season. Um, but uh, the FBI believed and the NFL believed that Bobby Lane and those, those Lions teams of the late 50s, even though they were winning championships, 
Um, we're also manipulating point spreads for Don Dawson and the Detroit Mud. 40s, you know, 50s and 60s, it's like you, it's incredible your knowledge. You just like yeah. ripped off like 10 different detailed stories of this happening. And then is we there, can we can get into the the. <laughs> I'm curious. Is there anything like that? I anybody that I would know like that. Okay, I so let's play? so all right. So let's get into. I mean, I know who those guys are, but yeah. Bobby Lane, I didn't see. So you know, obviously. but the story that I've been most interested in telling from the the nexus of the Detroit mob and and the Detroit sports scene is regarding the Bad Boys, uh, the Pistons championship teams of the late '80s, early '90s. My all-time favorite teams, uh, I swear by those bad boy squads. I loved every player on those teams. I watched every game. I went to a lot of those games. I lived in, I mean, that was really my, the 84 Tigers, I was a little kid and I was into it, but I was five years old. You can only appreciate sports so much as a five-year-old. But my love of sports really came about from the bad boys. Um, And sometimes, you know, you, you, you can, uh, it can be sobering to learn about your, your heroes. So some of this was, or I wouldn't say some of this, all of this is public knowledge. It was written about in the late nineties in a book uh, by Armand Katayan called Moneyball. Everyone knows about the Moneyball book that was turned into the film with Brad Michael Pitt Lewis, about yeah. uh, Michael Lewis, about um, Billy Bean and, and uh, uh, you know, metrics and, and crunching numbers uh, to, to win baseball games. But, the first Moneyball was actually written in, I believe it came out in 1997, and it was about NBA players and their crazy off-the-court lives and adventures. And in that book, it came out that um, there were allegations of point shaving uh, against the bad boys, and there were very specific allegations. There were three games in the 1988 season, 1988-89 season. So it was the season they won their first championship. Um, and they both happened, or the, all three incidents happened in the first two or three months of the season. Um, Isaiah Thomas, the captain of the team, was implicated, as well as James Edwards. Um, they were investigated, never charged. Uh, Isaiah, though, was called in front of a federal grand jury to account for hundreds of thousands of dollars that he was cashing through a mobbed up grocery store owner who he lived next to, who he was very close friends with, uh, a Chaldean by the name of Emmett Denha. Um, Emmett still owns um, Shoppers Market, which is kind of like a, kind of like an Aldi uh, wholesale, uh, lower income neighborhoods. Um, and Isaiah was, was cashing hundreds of thousands of dollars a month through, through these grocery stores. The FBI thought they were gambling proceeds. He claimed or claims that they were uh, money. He didn't want to go to a bank because of autograph seekers and whatnot. Um, and that the, the money that he was cashing was allowance for his wife and, and children. Um, we know for sure that the Detroit mob was holding casino nights at Isaiah's house. That's undisputed. Um, one of, and they were also holding these casino nights at Tommy Hearns's house. Uh, this was before, you know, the MGM and Greek town and motor city casino. Uh, but there were still a lot of high rollers that wanted to play dice that wanted to play blackjack. They had nowhere else to do it. And the Detroit mob would host these floating casino nights. 
Sometimes they'd be in warehouses. Sometimes they'd be in, you know, small bungalows uh, somewhere hidden in Northwest Detroit. But for the, for the, when they were bringing out their, the, the heavy artillery, when they got the highest of high rollers, they would sometimes host these events at celebrities' mansions. Um, and Isaiah and Tommy Hearns were, were two people that allowed them to have these events at their house. Um, and they, and they both, they both admitted under oath that they participated in these events, um, that they were gamblers. They wanted to throw dice, uh, but, uh, but they denied any, you know, any wrongdoing in terms of illegal activity with the mob, other than I think admitting they gambled. Um, well, isn't, isn't, I guess inviting, I guess inviting Jack, Jack, Jackie Jackaloni and Billy Jackaloni and Alan Hill into your house for them to host. Uh, you know, uh, craps games and, and blackjack games. Yeah. I mean, other than the six felonies, nothing illegal. To yeah. So, uh, unbelievable. I just, Alan I Hill, so Alan Hill, the same person that Don D. Serrano was booking these Mickelson bets through. Um, he sat courtside at all the pissing games and he had an, uh, again, I'm digressing a little bit. He had an over under scam going where he had the timekeeper on his payroll. So he had a like a, a like a coded system with hand gestures to the timekeeper about when to start the when to start the, the clock. And I heard Hilf was was making hundreds of thousands of dollars on over unders that he'd be able to manipulate with the, the timekeeper. But Hilf was also allegedly headlining these point shaving scams with the bad boys. Um, again. Isaiah and, and Edwards were never charged. Um, the FBI came out after um, the news broke, and the news actually broke on the day that the Pistons won their second championship. Um, and when they got off the plane from Portland in 1990, some of the air was, was kind of taken out of their balloon as, as winning back-to-back champions because Isaiah had to answer these questions about being called in front of grand juries investigating the mafia. Um, in fact, I believe Sports Illustrated kicked the Pistons off the cover that week and instead put Hale Irwin on the cover, another golfer, um, instead of the Pistons being back-to-back. And the, the headline or the article in Sports Illustrated that, that week about the Pistons winning back-to-back was thorns in roses, being like Pistons win back-to-back but also have to deal with allegations that they're their team captain and who had just won MVP of the finals was called in front of a federal grand jury investigating a mob gambling ring. And there is a big difference in the allegations that were put against him. So like I'm hearing this story for the first time. I mean, I was like still shitting my pants when all this happened. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what was going on and I haven't looked at it retroactively, but I'm hearing about this for the first time as you tell it to me, but my head immediately goes to this. Okay. The guy had a casino night with the mob at his house. Technically illegal, but it's kind of funny. It's charming. It's it, it was forever ago. It's a cool story. No problem. I'm not going to clutch any pearls. I think it's it's kind of awesome to be honest. But I think I'm typical in this regard. Where I have pause is if he was actually intentionally shaving points yeah. in the game. That's not cool or funny or no. I, it's that's like you it's get horrible. Your, you get your legs broken. Yeah. Like well, I saw, not even. Did, I don't care. I, you're you're the sacrificing. The, I think you're you're sacrificing the integrity of the game. You're second for you're sacrificing the integrity of you as a player. You're sacrificing the integrity of the franchise you play for. That's um, not a harmless vice. That's like actually kind of bullshit. If that happened, yeah. do you think that actually happened? 
I know you're. It's I'll not- send. I'll send you some stuff I've written about it. Again, I've written extensively about this. I've never heard one word from Isaiah's attorney. Um, I know Isaiah doesn't love the fact but that I've think, written about you, you this. You think it happened, and he, that's a he, big story. He uh, he blocked me from social media. Um, but I will say that the allegations are very specific. There are three games. Um, one game Isaiah didn't even play in. He pulled himself out of the game ten or pulled himself out of the lineup ten in the in the, a minute before tip off, so the line couldn't change. So one of the games he didn't actually play in. But they're saying that by him removing himself and saying that I'm not going to play today affected the line because the line couldn't. He's best player on the four. Right. Yeah. The two other, one of the games, it looks bad for Isaiah in terms of his performance. Now, he could have just had a bad game, but uh, he missed a bunch of free throws at the end of the game. He had a horrible shooting percentage. Um, they didn't, they went from like, I can't remember the exact line, but they went from up and covering to not covering pretty quickly. And his, his, it had to be his worst game of the year. Um, if you looked at his step, credibly suspicious, at least, yeah. I mean, credibly suspicious and Alan health would often tell anyone, including some conversations that I had with him that uh, he did not like Isaiah Thomas. He had a lot of issues with his, uh, with Isaiah Thomas. A lot of those issues stem from this these allegations. It's do 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 with do with that what you may. I don't know. I didn't even want to press Allen to go even deeper than that because I, I didn't. even you have of, his number. Can I press Allen? He's dead. Allen's dead. So Allen's oh, been dead for say, seven he years. Could, he could be. He could follow yeah. you up on the show. Oh, too bad I didn't get this thing off the ground but, earlier. Uh, I would have loved that. Uh, it was kind of a joke uh, in the last 10, 20 years of Allen's life where people would you wanted to get Alan to to really get triggered someone would be like go go ask him about Isaiah it's interesting because <laughs> i mean obviously it was a more established and documented and verified allegation that happened but we're still in the baseball world talking about the black Sox that happened over 100 years ago yeah. i'm here a huge pistons fan i i mean i you know know who isaiah is mm-hmm. and respect him yeah, I still, by the way, he's still my all-time favorite athlete. I love Isaiah Thomas. But this should be a bigger story is what I'm saying. How did I not know? I mean, Ben, is your mic on? Ben, did you have any idea Isaiah Thomas was credibly accused of throwing games in a championship season? No way. He, he says no. Yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know anybody that. It didn't get a lot of traction. The story, the, again, the book was released in 97. Um, it's a really good book, especially if you're interested in this kind of stuff. It goes into other stuff outside of the Pistons. Um, but uh, that's you know, a he, huge story. Yeah, and it, and it obviously got vetted at, at the at you know the high end of the, of the literary publishing industry that that was allowed to go to print. Um, I felt more comfortable reporting it ten years later because Katane had reported it and never got sued. I mean, there's no better uh, illustration of the fact that it's not a bigger story, and I don't feel as bad for not having known it than. The, the glorious bad boys documentary yeah. that ESPN they didn't get the into. They didn't get into any of that. Didn't get into it. It wasn't even like mentioned. Yeah. It, it wasn't. There was no breath of that. And all those it's, guys. And let me also say, point shaving or no point shaving, all of those guys, the entire bad boys team, were hanging out with Alan Hilf 
and Jackie Jack. I don't care about that. that that's, we're back into the. That's no, I'm just. Cool. I just want yeah. people to know that, like, yeah. that, uh, socializing. Dennis Rodman and Dantley and all those guys. They were hanging out at Lipsticks and they were hanging out at uh, another place. I that think it was called Strip Club. No, Lipsticks was a um, uh, just a club club. Regular oh, okay, club. okay. Uh, Lipsticks. I think if they were hanging out at strip clubs, they were hanging out at the Booby Trap at that time, which was the biggest strip club at at that time. Um, that's where Kirk Gibson and Dave Rosema. Um, married uh, two twin strippers. Oh, I think they're still married to those women, actually. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, so there was a lot of socializing going on between those bad boys. Janopolis was another huge hangout place for the mob and, and the bad boys on uh, uh, a 12 mile and uh, uh, middle belt. Um, Johnny Janopolis and Pete Janopolis, great guys, great ribs. Um, but, you know, that place was a, a real hot spot. I think. Playboy magazine in the eighties named it, you know, best singles bar in, in America. But you know, in the late eighties, bad boys were there every, every night. And so was the mop. <laughs> I, you know, that uh, it's incredible stories. I just, I can't believe the Isaiah thing. I can't wait to read more into that because that should be the legacy of them. Really? Right. I mean, or at least in the top three, it definitely doesn't get, and unless you're reading me or Armand Katane, it never gets brought up around here. Um, I didn't know. I know shit that Bob Sura, who was here for five months with the Pistons. Oh, I love Bob the Bat. You, I love the fact that you just dropped the Bobby Sura reference. Well, I, I just I remember shit he said in a press conference. He guys here for five months. Yeah. Like I, I know about that. I don't know that Isaiah Thomas was was being well, investigated. Again, I got, I'm going to go down a small rabbit hole here, and this is me being somewhat conspiratorial, but I think there's merit to it. I believe that the Detroit media is compromised in their coverage of organized crime. Well, I mean, Robert Snell got, uh, no, and, and, and kudos to Robert Snell for kind of bucking that trend. And for the first time in 14 years, putting the Detroit mob on the front page of the newspaper, I'm not talking about Mickelson compromised in that they don't want to get shot in a parking lot. No, like, comp- no compromise so? in the sense that the Detroit mafia is so diversified and so vertically integrated into white collar business in the corporate world that they have, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars of advertising revenue going to mainstream media. And the mainstream media knows that they're covering them too hard. They're going to lose those advertising dollars. I had a front page story that was going to go, or a a cover story that was going to go um, in what used to be Detroit, it used to be Detroit Monthly. Now it's called Our Magazine. And uh, it was all about the Detroit mafia and where they, it was, it was in the early 2010s and kind of or late 2000s or early 2010s about kind of the, the, the current state of the Detroit mafia. And it got, the story got killed at the last second. And I talked to someone and they were like, they gave me the, I don't want to name the business, but there was a business that gave them a lot of money in ad revenue. And they had got wind of my story and had threatened to pull all that ad revenue. Well, I mean, they're already, especially now struggling more than ever in that industry. So they're not going to, Quite any hand at this yeah. point. So that's and, and I also want to say that the Detroit mob is an outlier in that regard. You know, the, in terms of the media, just in terms of connection. how diversified they are and how into the the corporate ether they are. They're the opposite of knuckle draggers. They are a, a a crime family that has always thrived in the shadows. They're the definition of stealth and intelligence 
in in gangland affairs. I hear about you know the New York and, and Chicago. Yeah. Nobody talks about the Port Detroit mafia intentionally, the and, that, and they're brilliant, and, and that's and it's by design. Well, I'm not compromised. I don't know anything right. about it, but right. I mean, I would have to read it from people like you. You're you're in a very small yeah. group of people that actually talk about this stuff. I find it fascinating. I want to transition to this now. No. Normally, I'm going to have Ben run the graphic and all that. We're calling it the speed round. I want you to disregard the title, disregard the normal format. I want you to go, well, as long as you want, there's no, I'm not going to give you a word limit, but don't feel like you're restricted to one or two sentences. Okay. Go as deep as you want. So Ben, let's start the speed round. We'll get to that. All right. As promised, I said to hold that thought with this one. I can't have a mob guy on here and not talk about this. <laughs> okay. Where is Jimmy Hoffa? Tell so, me where he is. I think uh, the crux of, of your question is uh, a fallacy. I don't think Jimmy Hoffa is anywhere. I think, it's all, I think we've been sitting here for 46 years on a wild goose chase looking for a body that doesn't exist. And by the fact that we keep on looking and there are tips on tips and digs on digs and conversations on conversations, it, it just it builds this mythology and the mythology then feeds on itself. Um, and the more you dig and the more you look and the less you find, the bigger the mythology grows. I, I, and, and, and I just don't believe that, uh, that there is a body that was buried. I believe that they murdered him um, shortly after kidnapping him on the afternoon of July 30th, 1975. He disappeared from Telegraph and Maple, uh, which is now on Diamo, but at the time was, uh, the Red Fox, uh, the strip mall is pretty much exactly the same as it was 46 years ago. Um, and I believe he was taken to a nearby residence, murdered, and then transported to a, a sanitation company that the Detroit mob controlled and incinerated. I don't think it was a coincidence that in the coming months, that sanitation company mysteriously burned down in an arson fire before the FBI could get a search warrant. Um, and I believe that the Detroit mob in their, in their criminal brilliance, honestly, have been actively putting forth a disinformation campaign or a misinformation campaign. Uh, where the Jackaloni brothers, uh, Jackie's dad and uncle, uh, Anthony, Tony Jack Jackaloni, and Vito Billy Jack Jackaloni, who have both been dead now uh, for quite a while. Uh, Tony died in 2001. Um, Billy died in, in 2012. But they were the masterminds of, of the Hoffa conspiracy. And part of pulling off the greatest murder of all time, really, I mean, the perfect murder, if you will, uh, was intentionally telling a hundred people a hundred different things and just filling the ether with all of these falsehoods. In fact, telling people that were powerful mob guys that had a right to know what had happened, they were feeding them disinformation. So brilliant plan. Yeah. So you had guys, and I still see it to this day. You have mobsters from all around the country that claim that they know what happened. Because I'm guessing they were at some social function with one of the Jackalones in the years that preceded, and the Jackalones were drinking, and, 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 and they, from what I could gather in my research, Billy and Tony, like, got off 
on the idea that they were spreading all these lies. Like I know one of the things they enjoyed doing when they, whenever they were down at the Renaissance center, they would allude to the people they were with that Hoffa was in the cement at the Renaissance center, which he isn't. But I've heard numerous stories that Tony would be walking with people in the Renaissance center to be like, Hey, everyone say good morning to Jimmy. And then they'd be leaving and be like, everyone's saying we've good night, goodbye to Jimmy. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. Yeah. So, you know, they were just kind of getting their jollies by spreading all this different information. So as a result, you have this a thousand different stories coming from a thousand different people and none of it's true. So the one, what, a couple of years ago, someone was saying he's someplace wet. I know where he is. He's someplace wet. I don't know if you recall that, but he was. Uh... I think that was uh, Michael Francis, who is a very high profile ex mob guy that um, you're a fan of the Jim Rome show, which I haven't actually haven't listened to in a while, but I used to be a big Jim Rome fan and Jim Rome would have uh, Mike Francis on a lot. Mike He's Francis was a, uh, they called him the yuppie Don and he was a, a young guy in New York in the seventies and eighties. He came up with what was known as the gas scam, which was a way to bootleg stolen fuel to like major, you know, mobile and Exxon and they made tens of millions of dollars. He went to prison and came out of prison and, and said he was done with the life. And now he's like found God, but he also does talks. I know that the NCAA has him come in and do talks to all the athletes about staying away from gamblers and whatnot. So he's someone that I think is a victim of this disinformation campaign because he was so high up in the New York mafia. And because his dad was this guy named Sonny Francis, who was just, Oh, a legend in the New York mafia just recently died at like 102. He was locked up at like a hundred and they let him out of prison. Finally, like at a hundred um, just as OG as OG came. And I believe that Sonny and Mike heard from the Jack Loney, something that was total bullshit. So Mike Francis now has been running around since the Irishman came out, which again, total bullshit. The Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino movie that came out on Netflix uh, two years ago, just, an utter falsehood of a, of a narrative. Um, but Mike Francis has been doing a lot of interviews saying that he knows where Jimmy Hoffa was. Well, so buried. He thinks he knows he's yeah. not full of shit. He, no, he, he thinks, thinks he, knows. he knows. He thinks he knows a lot of guys yeah. think they know. And that, again, that's some of the brilliance here that like guys that would in theory be in the know think they know, but they know something that they were told, but what they were told was a lie. I'm curious how, now you said right at the top, that, you know, uh, the Jack Ohlone's, right, were the masterminds of this plot. And you said that, matter of fact, mm-hmm. that was just, here's what happened, and, you know, here's their misinformation campaign. It was very calculated. If that's the case, if it's so established and it's settled science, how anytime there's another Jimmy Hoffa tip, do I see 100 articles, the seven most likely people that off Jimmy Hoffa? Because you seem a lot more resolved on it than I thought people were. I, I, I'm not an expert. I don't no, know. No. So, I mean, I, I'm going by my FBI sources. I have. It's pretty, I will, you're pretty sure. I will, I, will, sure? I will humbly say that nobody outside of the federal government or the actual hit team knows more about the Jimmy Hoffa conspiracy than I do. I've interviewed a over two dozen FBI agents that work the case. I've interviewed almost every FBI agent that was on the Hoffa task force. I've interviewed a dozen mobsters that were either one step removed or two steps removed from this. Um, The FBI is adamant that this was quarterbacked by Tony and Billy Giacalone. 
and that it was carried out or that Tony Giacalone was kind of the head of the snake, um, arranging all the details. And then Billy Giacalone, his younger brother, was the boots on the ground uh, with the hit team. There is no prosecution in the murder of Jimmy Nobody's Alfred, ever right? been arrested. Nobody's ever so been sure, found. You've talked to 24 FBI guys that, oh, yeah, it was them. They have to have some evidence to have led them to that conclusion. Yeah, right? but they didn't not, all not, have the same it, hunch. It, 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 ain't, it ain't enough evidence to bring into court, though. Uh, well, I don't know. We'll get into well, that. You know, with Bill, you know, but, but with Billy and Tony, you know, they went after them for other things. I mean, in the years after Hoffa disappeared, Tony Giacalone had to go to prison for, for seven years for an extortion in a um, tax evasion case. Billy Giacalone had a number of run-ins with the law in the, year after, in the years after Hoffa. And a lot of it was just heat being brought on them because they were trying to jam them for Hoffa. I'm going to talk to you off mic about the Hawk because I, I find it so fascinating. Again, I, I learned about Isaiah Thomas. You, <laughs> you, you broke my heart there. But just the fact that the Jimmy Hoffa story in, in terms of the people that are in the know and would know is settled is, is fascinating to me. Obviously, the hitmen and the, the Associated Mafia would know and would know all along. I didn't realize that the federal government was essentially unanimous and resolved that this was how it happened. Well, I think they're resolved to who coordinated it. And that's what matters. Right. right? And who cares who literally pulled the trigger? That's kind of irrelevant, right? Right. I mean, not totally, but it's not the bigger piece. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you what the FBI believes in terms of a hit team. The FBI and I believe that the hit team was made up of three people, uh, two being Detroiters and one being a a East Coast representative of the Genovese crime family out of New Jersey, um, who represented Tony Provenzano, who was part of the conspiracy. Um, Jimmy Hoffa was going to a mafia-style sit-down lunch meeting at the Red Fox with, supposed to be with Tony Giacalone, who was the Detroit Mob Street boss, and Anthony Tony Pro Provenzano, who was a, a, a capo regime uh, out of New Jersey, but was also the most powerful Teamsters uh, chieftain on the East Coast. And Hoffa had a long-standing beef with Provenzano that he needed to settle and, and make peace with if he was going to take back the union the year, uh, in a year later in 1976 when the, the next presidential Teamster election was held. Um, and I believe that the hit team was made up of two people came from Tony Jack and one person came from Tony Pro. So I believe that it was Billy Giacalone and a guy by the name of Anthony Tony Pal Palazzolo who at the time was kind of a nobody, but eventually rose to be quite a somebody in Detroit. He ran the entire downriver section of Detroit, um, all the rackets down in, you know, Allen Park, Wyandotte, Taylor, Woodhaven, all that area. Uh, and then the guy from New Jersey was uh, allegedly Salvatore Bergulio, who they called Sally Bugs, um, who was subsequently murdered himself a couple years after Hoffa disappeared. But Billy Jacqueline didn't die until 2012. Tony Palazzolo, who I've been told the FBI believes was the trigger man, um, died in 2019. I was on the verge of getting him to do an interview with NBC, and then he died, died of stomach cancer. Uh, but Tony Pal was caught on an FBI wire in the early 90s bragging of his role in the Hoffa uh, murder. He was also fingered by a number of high echelon informants as being involved in the murder conspiracy and uh, another kind of, I don't want to say funny. I mean, I guess it gets the funny story about how desperate the FBI is to finally put this thing to bed. 
Billy Giacalone in the last two years of his life wasn't really in the best mental shape and was living out his final days in a, a East side retirement home. And the FBI bugged his room thinking that they could get some like dementia addled ramblings about Hoff. Like that's how desperate they are. We're yeah. going to bug a 90 year old guy, a 90 year old d- dimension riddled mobster. We're going to bug his, his uh, uh, retirement home room to think that maybe we could solve the Hoff crime. But you said they have solved. So that's, I, well, no, but if they got him, well, they've solved it. Like in theory, they've solved it, but yeah. nobody's ever been brought to justice for it. Okay. Why, if they're so resolved, why does every time somebody says anything about this, any type of tip, are they digging up some guy's driveway in Warren? Right. That, like if they, that's the, that's the disconnect. Cause as far as I knew, and it, look, I'll defer, man, you know, a thousand times more about this stuff than I do. I'm just saying like why I'm confused. I don't get it. Because until resolved, you, why dig, why dig up the driveway? Because no body, no case. I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, yeah, but I think you, you can acknowledge that he was incinerated. So why look for the body? Well, that that's part of the issue. Like if you've been, yeah. there's no, I mean, it, it's, it's a, what's the chicken and what's the egg here? Like, yeah, I get it. I get uh, it. And I think all these digs are, they're trying to find, they're trying to find remains. There are, I think, let me back up for a second. I subscribe to the incineration theory. There's a lot of retired FBI agents and even current FBI agents that work the case that subscribe the incineration theory. I think that's the one part of the case that isn't consensus in the FBI is where he is. Okay. The consensus is who did it. Gotcha. And, gotcha. and uh, how it was done and how it was coordinated. No, that makes sense. Uh, one more thing on Hoff and then we'll, we'll move on. Cause I, I just, and I'm sure this could be Googled, but just while I have the, the expert here. So he went to the lunch, he went in to the restaurant, right? Right. They didn't just meet in the parking lot. Well, so it was a, uh, a two o'clock meeting at the Red Fox that he was stood up at. So he showed up at the Red Fox. Okay. He sat in the lobby for like 20 minutes, half hour, talked to a couple people in there. He was supposed to be meeting Tony Jack and Tony pro Tony Jack was at his headquarters at the South athletic club, um, which is now the Fox sports Detroit building. Um, But back then was Tony Jack headquarters on evergreen and 11 mile. Um, Tony Provenzano was, at his union hall in New Jersey playing cards. Jimmy Hoffa was quite upset by being stood up. He left the restaurant at around 2.30, 2.40, went to what at the time was a um, hardware store, which is now a Planet Fitness, and uh, used a payphone. We don't no longer have payphones. Called his wife. Called right? his wife. Yeah. Told his wife that he had been stood up and that he was going to stop at the grocery store and pick up some steaks to grill for dinner. And then at about 2.45, he was headed back to his car in the parking lot when he was intercepted by Tony Giacalone's son's car, which was a 1975 maroon um, marquee, Mercury Mercury marquee. Um, And the FBI doesn't believe that Tony Giacalone's son was in the car, but that Tony Giacalone's son was used by the hit team. And they believe that Billy Giacalone, Tony Palazzolo, and Sal Pergulio were in the car. They told Hoffa, hey, Jimmy, we've moved the meeting with the two Tonys. We want to be somewhere more private. Get in the car, and we're going to take you to the meeting up the street. Do you think he knew right then he was in trouble? Or do you think he was no, still up and up? I think, up and up? I think 
if he knew, he wouldn't have gone to the meeting at all if he thought he was in trouble. No, but there's something suspicious about their no showing and not, their car not, pulls not, up. Not, not necessarily in my pro, uh, with my protocol. Okay. I think Hoffa had been to enough mob sit downs where things are changed at the last minute, especially okay. if it's in a public place and you want to be somewhere more private. That's not atypical for that. Right. Okay. And there were two houses within a two or three minute drive, uh, one going west on Maple into Franklin and another one going uh, north on Telegraph to Long Lake Road. There were two houses that Hoffa was familiar with going to meet the Jackalonis at, where he had had sit downs with them on prior occasions. So if Billy Jackaloni, who was Tony's brother, showed up and said, and by the way, Tony and Billy had been the ones that had been brokering all of this for the previous couple of weeks. So if Billy showed up in the passenger seat and said, hey, Jimmy, my brother didn't want to do it here. He wanted to do it at the house down the street. I think Jimmy Hoffa wouldn't, I think he would have. Okay, that would have made sense to Jimmy suspicion. Right. Okay. It's so, it's such a cool, I mean, it's a sad story, I, I guess, but it's just, a, it's a cool story. I work a mile away. I take my kid to the Dairy Queen yep. in that shopping center. Yeah. I, when I put on a production of Les Miserables, I met with our director, a good friend of mine, Catherine, and my wife, Lynn, at that Andiamo like six different times. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's so, like, I work a mile away. Like, it's I, I so, went, like, I actually, it's as Detroit. a kid, I went and saw the Jimmy Hoffa movie with Jack Nicholson at the theater in that, oh, in, that's, in that that's shopping center. That's and my level. dad, and this is before I knew any of this or really even cared about any of this. And my dad was like, oh, isn't it cool? I'm taking you to go see the Jimmy Hoffa movie in the same shopping center Jimmy Hoffa was kidnapped in. I can't, I can't top that one short of like me kidnapping somebody right. in, the, <laughs> in the parking lot. Then that's the only but way I could top I, I will that. say one thing that might have made Jimmy Hoffa worried was Another part of mob protocol is that you don't take a weapon to a sit down, um, no matter who you are. Uh, it's it's disrespectful. It's it's not it's not when there's made guys, etiquette. Yeah. Um, but Jimmy Hoffa had a gun in his car, uh, and I think Jimmy Hoffa wanted to have that gun with him going to that getting in the car. And I, I heard there was some conversation where Jimmy's like, well, I'm just going to go into my car and get something real quick. And they're like, no, no, get in the car. So, you know, take that however you will, like that Jimmy Hoffa might have knew something was going on. I mean, he had a weapon nearby, but wasn't able to get to the weapon. And then I guess just kind of put it in fate's hands and fate was unkind. This is like pure speculation on your part. I'm sure what I'm going to ask you, because there's no way to know. But do you think that he at there was a five second period where they saw them come at him or that they saw the, you know, the, the no, steel I think, rope, or do you think he was walking down this guy's hallway? I, no, I think and, he was, I don't even think he got into the hallway. I think they pulled into the, into the uh, garage and yeah. he probably got out of the uh, garage and was walking into the door to the house from the garage. And they just put it in the back of his head. Unbelievable. And the Hoffa stuff I could go on. But with. I have heard from other reliable sources that it wasn't, a, a gunshot wound that he was strangled to death. So uh, take that again. Yeah. Take it with a grain of salt. Well, yeah, either way. It, it, I, man, if you could jump into that guy's head, like retroactively, yeah. just what he was. Thinking. I don't think he saw it coming though. I think he was, he was blinded by his obsession with taking back the Teamsters union. And for a very intelligent man who was incredibly savvy and incredibly politically, um, he he knew how to politic his way up and down the the Teamster uh, 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 
power index, if you will. Uh, he was clearly exhibiting behavior that was going to get you killed. And for someone that had been around a lot of people that had exhibited that behavior before and had been killed, and Jimmy Hoffa saw this, he, was, he lacked the self-awareness to understand that he was exhibiting that same type of behavior and was asking really in some ways for the final result and just really thought too highly of himself. I mean, if you watch the, the one thing I will say that the Irishman movie got right was Pacino's portrayal of Hoffa, how indignant he was. Like, they would never do that to me. Like, the mafia would, you know, they don't have the balls to do that to me. And it's like, yeah, well, yeah, actually they do. Actually they do, and they're going to. Well, that's the perfect transition to the next question in the quote-unquote softly used speed round. Uh, Thank you for that, Hoffa, man. I could talk to you all night. You're (laughs) fast. This stuff's fascinating. So transition to this, you, you shit all over the Irishman. I actually haven't seen it. I can't speak to that. I certainly can't speak to the accuracy of it the way you can. What is the most accurate mob movie? We put up Goodfellas, mm-hmm. Godfather, Casino. You, you can throw out anyone. I don't mean documentary. I mean the Hollywood. Yeah. It's got Brando. It's got De Niro. I mean, I'm sure they all have flaws. But if there's one that sort of captures, even if not the fact of the letter, the spirit. You know, yeah. I, I, the Godfather, I was told they got everything wrong, basically. Is there one that sort of generally captured the so, mob? I'll say that Goodfellas is a perfect movie. I mean, it's the perfect movie. So I, but if, if I was going to, tell someone a movie to watch to really get the essence of what the mob is. It's not Godfather. It's not Goodfellas. It's not Scarface. It's not the movies that glamorize. I would say it's Donnie Brasco and it's specifically the portrayal that uh, was Al Pacino depicting his lefty Ruggiero character as just a spoke on a wheel as a guy that gives his whole life to, to this world and, and takes an oath and it means so much to him. And he's making his money by taking a, a hammer and, and, and trying to break open a, a parking meter because he needs to make ends meet. Most mob figures aren't the Jackaloni brothers. They're, you know, they're not the Don Corleones or the Pauly from, from Goodfellas. Um, they're, they're lower rung working humps another book i did uh about chicago it's called family affair if you ever saw the movie casino um it's all the true story behind casino uh the murders that happen at the end of the movie casino uh joe pesci and his brother are murdered in a cornfield those murders were actually solved and went to trial in 2007 Uh, i covered the trial in chicago for chicago magazine and then wrote a book about it and i tried to make the book not there were a couple books written about the trial and i didn't want to make the book a blow by blow of the trial like this happened on the first day be pretty, be pretty dry day. be pretty dry but that's how the other yeah. two books were written and i kind of wrote it about i want to tell the true story of casino and because i love that movie so i wanted to tell the true story of casino and then bring it up until 2007 8 when those murders were finally solved i'm in this tiny tiny group of people that like casino more than goodfellas i get no, so much shit i, I don't it. i don't have an issue with it i think it's a great it's, movie it's very close I, I just i'm a little more of a casino guy like i just i, I know ray liotta gets so much praise for that casino by the way if you Doesn't want to talk uh, both movies were incredibly accurate in their depictions i mean they, they did not stray far from the truth both of those movies what you saw in those movies really 
happen. They weren't embellishing. Like the Nikki Sand, like when I first saw Casino, I, I thought, and this was before, again, I, people assume that this is stuff I've been interested in and have known my whole life, but I really didn't just start to acquire my knowledge base of this into my 20s when I went to law school. Me and Justin actually went to the same law school. I don't, another guy, uh, I mean, we weren't there at the same time. Right. But the fact that, like, we have, we've never crossed paths, <laughs> it, it just blows my mind. But, but yeah, while yeah. I was in law school, I was interning for the Illinois Attorney General's office and working actually mob cases. And it got me really interested uh, in the world. And, and then I had a professor in law school that, that I was very vocal at the end of law school that I didn't want to practice law. I had a professor that took me aside and was like, you ever think about writing about crime? And I was like, can you do that? I'm like, I don't know. And he actually helped me get a book deal and I was off and running. But um, one of the interesting things uh, about Casino is that, you know, the, the Joe Pesci character, who I was, when I first saw Casino at the theater, I saw it at the theater. I remember being like, I really like this movie, but it seems like Joe Pesci's just doing kind of the Tommy D from Goodfellas and just kind of, you know, re, recal, recalibrating and doing kind of a, a, a secondary version of Tommy D as Nicky Santoro. But then I learned about the real Nicky Santoro, whose name is Tony Spilatro. And Tony Spilatro, I mean, in some ways, Joe Pesci kind of underplayed it. I mean, Spilatro really? was a lunatic. Oh my God, he was off the rails in yeah, the movie. Right. And, and, and it was all, yeah. And, and I talked to people that were uh, close to him. In fact, the guy that played his right hand man in the movie was played by a guy named, uh, an actor named Frank Vincent, who was then in The Sopranos as Phil Leotardo. In the movie, he played Frank Marino, who was based on Frank Collada. And I talked to Frank Collada quite a bit at the end of Frank Collada's life, who was Tony Spilatro's right hand man. And I said, and, and, and Collado was the, was the uh, technical consultant on Casino with Scorsese. Scorsese used him as the go-to because nobody was closer to Spilatro than Collado was. And I said, what, uh, what did they get wrong with Casino? He said, the only thing they got wrong was that, uh, that, that the Joe Pesci character swore. He swore a lot. I was like, Tony didn't swear? He's like, no. Like, Tony was a son of a bitch, a lunatic. He would kill you as fast as, you know, we'd blink his eye, but he didn't swear. That's uh, well, <laughs> really there was. Yeah. I mean, there's like entire websites dedicated to like how many f bombs he throws are, on that, yeah, are in know. there. That's fascinating to me. Like, I, I, the you fact, gonna tell me you didn't gamble that money? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> like, I, oh don't, you, get into, I, don't, don't get me into the quote. Don't get me into the quotes. Yeah. I'll let me hear you gamble. Let me hear you. Let me hear you gamble that money away. I'll leave you where I find you. Yeah, that's so good. I'll give you the fucking money to turn the heat yeah, on. on. Right. Did you gamble? Right. <laughs> <laughs> fucking, fucking kids at home. Like, I, I love that scene. Says, I could go all night. Or the scene that. where they walk into the. Uh, oh, Nick, I, I, I thought you was laying. Like, no, I'm taken. Yeah, I'm taken. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. Oh, maybe if I stuck your head through that window, you'd remember. <laughs> uh, that's why you had it right. You thought I was fucking laying it. <laughs> I thought Frank Vincent points at him like it's unbelievable. Watch yourself. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's so good. I, I seriously. My dad and I have driven my mom and sister nuts for like 20 years quoting that stuff. So, yeah, I love it. So what I wanted to do with this is in the lead in and a question for you. You've written all these books about it. I would say you're the foremost expert in it. In, the, in terms of Detroit, let's keep it to Detroit. I know you know other cities, other regions. What's the biggest unsolved crime in Detroit right now? Mafia or otherwise, because you've covered crime generally. You're a crime writer. Well, the two 
greatest unsolved mysteries. In Let's leave Hoffa out of it. Without Hoffa? Yeah, because we've discussed that. Well, yeah. I, I would, it would say, without question, it would be the Oakland County child killer. Um, which, if you talk to people in the government, they'll tell you that it's much more important, you know, kind of for humanity's sake, to find closure with the Oakland County child killer case, then it's not even a contest. What was that? Because I don't know what you're talking about. So Oakland County child killer was a serial killer that was running around uh, Metro Detroit, Oakland County in the late seventies. There were at least, uh, I believe four or five children that were abducted and sodomized and murdered. Um, They were all, uh, the bodies were all found in pristine condition. They were all like, you know, showered and quaffed, and they were all the autopsy showed that the the last meal they had had been the the kids' favorite meals. And initially, they were called the babysitter killer. The the, the serial killer was called the babysitter babysitter killer because they allegedly had taken care of the kids before they raped them and murdered them, which sounds just extra disturbing. Um, but I believe there's another fallacy in the notion of trying to find the Oakland County child killer. Cause I don't believe there was an Oakland County child killer. I believe there were Oakland County child killers. I believe it was a, a huge pedophile conspiracy that was reaching up to uh, all the way into Genesee County. Um, I believe the ringleader of, of the Oakland County child killer conspiracy was a, a, a man by the name of Christopher Bush who lived in Bloomfield Hills. His father was on the board, I believe, at GM. Um, and the investigation into him by the state police got buried because of who his dad was. Um, he was about to report to prison for a child sex crime that had been, uh, that he'd been convicted of in Genesee County. And he uh, swallowed a shotgun in Bloomfield Hills in, in, the man, in the family's mansion. And then from that point on, there were no more murders. It's a fair guess. Then. So, but um, I believe there were a number of people that were involved in the conspiracy that are still alive. There was some DNA recently, I shouldn't say recently, but in the last decade, there was some new DNA evidence that was found that was tied to a, uh, a prisoner in the MDOC right now who the, the government believes uh, that there was these older individuals that were kind of leading this pedophile ring. I shouldn't say it's not just a pedophile ring, but a pedophile kidnapping murder ring. Um, and I believe these people were in their 20s and 30s, but then they had help from boys that were like 15, 16. And some of this DNA ties to some of the kids that were allegedly helping some of the perpetrators. So it sounds a little bit like true detective, right? Like this yeah. first season where it's like a pedophile sex ring and there's but law enforcement. It, they were, the kids were disappearing from, you know, one disappeared from what's now the Kroger parking lot at uh, Woodward and, and Maple. Um, another one disappeared. Uh, from downtown Berkeley. Another one disappeared, uh, I think, right uh, after leaving Lincoln Drugs on Coolidge and in between 10 and 11. So, I mean, these were all, you know, places that, like we were talking about Hoffa, that we, that 
we as Metro Detroiters drive by all the time. And you Where know, were the bodies discovered? You said they were found in pristine condition. Yeah, they were found. A lot of them were found, like, uh, on the side of highways. Okay, so they were dumping them. Yeah, they were dumping them. And, uh, so I think four of the bodies were found in Oakland County, and the fifth body, I think, was found in Livonia. But they were all kidnapped from Oakland County. Okay. And that story sucked. I was going to say, how is there not a movie about it? But, the, like, who would want to watch that? Yeah, there's so, like, a, a recent uh, book, uh, I believe, came out about it. Um, that was written. I haven't read it. That was released. Uh, there was like I, I know there was a e- true Hollywood story back in the late nineties. They did on it, um, and I think there might have been. Channel Four did a podcast. I think diving into it a couple of years ago. I had helped them with their Jimmy Hoffa podcast, and I think their follow up to Hoffa podcast was the Oakland County Files. Okay, podcast. yeah, that that story. It's disturbing, yeah. and but I, I I agree. I remember talking to um. Um, Brooks Patterson before he died and uh, he's the one who said to me he's like it is infinitely more important to get to the bottom of the Oakland County Tile Killer than it is to get to the bottom of Hoffa he's like we know what happened with they, well they know and Hoffa was a nefarious actor right. in his yeah. own right you know not he's an like, innocent kid and uh, yeah he, he had these these five kids and who knows how many more right that uh, that were victims here and, and just gruesome. Like I said, I mean, sodomizing them and, you know, these were six, seven-year-old kids. That's horrible. Yeah, and then, you know, obviously murdering them. So I would say that's the, the, the most important unsolved mystery in, in, in Michigan history to, to, uh, to, to find some closure with. I hope they do. I hope uh, in the future we could find some people that were involved in that conspiracy and they could shed light and, and finally get an idea of what exactly happened. There. And who knows what else that'll unlock. Too. Yeah. I mean, something, anytime you're dealing with a criminal ring, it's never just that it's yes. always other stuff going on. And, and those dominoes start to fall. So let's stay regional. We talked about the, the unsolved crime. Who is the most vicious criminal that you've researched, studied in Detroit? Just the meanest guy. You know, I sometimes say Jordan Zimmerman because no one stole more money from, <laughs> from Detroit yeah. than Jordan Zimmerman. But Jordan Zimmerman, who we all agree was the biggest uh, thief in Detroit uh, history, aside from him, who was just just the most ruthless so, criminal. I would say there was a um, a African American hitman that worked for the Italian mafia. Um, was also uh, a member of an offshoot of the Italian mafia that was a kind of a black organized crime group. His name was Chester Campbell. Um, if you ask any member of federal law enforcement or even local law enforcement that was alive in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and you mention the name Chester Campbell, they, they will immediately start to kind of, uh, I don't want to say that they start shaking in their boots, but they, they, there's definitely a reaction. There's weight, there's weight to it. There's the definitely name. a reaction to it. Um, he was a renowned contract killer that was being sought, uh, some say around the country, other people say around the world. Um, and this was back in the the sixties and seventies. He was back then allegedly getting paid 50,000, a hundred thousand dollars for contract hits. Um, he was arrested on two separate occasions with hit lists. That included judges and politicians and lawyers. Did he have it in his pocket? Yeah, when they arrested him. <laughs> uh, in his car. 
Uh, and one of the arrests, I feel, I believe his final arrest, um, was back in 84, 85. And I talked to the, uh, the arresting FBI agent and he told the story about, you know, we, we patted him down, we put him in handcuffs, take him to the station. We took all what well, we thought we took all his weapons off him. And then someone in the FBI said, well, what's in his short pocket? And they pulled out a pen that looked like just a pen, but in fact, it was a gun. Oh my God. So like they almost let him into, he almost, they almost went into general population in Wayne County lockup with a pen gun. Uh, he was, and he was a very, um, learned man. Uh, he was someone that was very, uh, versed on music and art and culture. Uh, he would spend hours and hours at the Detroit museum of art. Uh, when he was in prison, he was a, was known as a voracious reader and just incredibly high IQ. Um, and like I said, very cultured for someone that was quite a, um, a nefarious individual. Um, you would think maybe more of a knuckle dragger, but in reality, it was very refined. Um, but his name and his reputation, you know, echoed from one part of Detroit to another. And then the reputation in Detroit got so big in the fifties and sixties that other crime bosses from around the country started seeking his services. He's like the LeBron James yeah. hitman. Yes. Like everybody's, everybody's courting him, wants to give the presentation. Was it just the, the they, fact that he was so effective? Was it the nature of how he was taking people out? What made uh, him so, is that just, he was effective and yeah, got the and, job done? And, and he, he was, uh, he, he referred to himself as, as one of mother nature's unfortunate creatures or, uh, they called him, Dr. Death, they, they called him, um, he had a number of very dark <laughs> nicknames. Cool, cool nicknames. Uh, but I know Dr. Death was one of them, The Undertaker. He actually headquartered out of a uh, funeral home. Very fitting. <laughs> it, it wasn't my grandpa's, was it? We'll have to look into that one. But uh, yeah, so he's one of those people that, that you mention his name to anybody. Uh, Italian, Black, Jewish, Middle Eastern top crook and, and they'll all have a lot of stories about Chester Campbell and, and what a badass he was. Kaiser Soze in real yes. life. Yeah. That's what it seems like. So I want to finish with this. Talked a lot about history. We've gone to the forties, fifties, sixties, whatever. I'm curious for right now, the Detroit mafia scene in 2021, you alluded to a little bit that is out there. They still have some influence in the media, uh, whether direct or indirect. Just what is the Detroit Mafia scene right now? How active are they? Uh, how dangerous are they? Should is this something people should give a shit about? Worry about? Are they more just kind of uh, old news in the ba on the back? I don't think they're dangerous in the sense that there are bodies dropping. Um, there's probably been, I would guess, three or four mob murders in the last twenty five years. I mean, that's still three or four murders. Um. I don't believe there's been a, a mob murder in Detroit for about a decade, at least. Um, the last confirmed mob murder in Detroit was 2002. Uh, there was another one in 07 that was an overdose that people questioned whether or not it was, an, they believe it was a hot dose or an intentional overdose. Um, but, you know, 
I think that they control all legal gambling, uh, a lot of drugs. Um, and like I said, they're incredibly diversified right now. So a lot of white collar scams, a lot of uh, internet scams. Um, if you're not doing business with them, you're not going to know they exist. They're not coming to shake down. They're just like any organized crime group. They prey on their own. So, you know, the people that are being extorted are people that run businesses that are on the fringes of, of legality um, or are people that they know um, in their community. So I don't, I mean, they're not showing up at, at a, you know, a delicatessen run by a, a Jewish guy, uh, you know, in Southfield and trying to extort him. They're showing up at an Italian restaurant in Shelby Township, getting an introduction from a cousin and trying to cut into those. But this stuff's still going on. Yeah. Uh, and I would say that the legalization of marijuana, um, even when it went med rec or even when it went med legal and now it's yep. rec legal, the idea, or I guess in some ways conventional wisdom might tell you that by legalizing everything, you eliminate the black market. But in reality, it's the opposite. And the black market goes through the roof. Really? So I know that it's opened up a Pandora's box for, for gangsters in Detroit. And it's just another thing to extort. And I, I don't get it. How they extort grows. Oh, okay. So they're going, it's just going to go. They, yeah. They go into a grow and I, I'm, I'm not someone who is incredibly well-versed on marijuana law, but I, let's just for argument's sake, say that someone's allowed to grow 18 plants or yeah. 20 plants. Well, then someone will come to you representing someone from the Detroit mafia and be like, Hey, we heard you got 20 plants. Guess what? We got six of them. I, I, I would have never guessed because I did subscribe to the theory and I mean, up until maybe 10 seconds ago, unquestionably did that legalization does tend to ease that burden of criminality and you, you think it ramps it up. Yeah, I think all these guys have investments. I shouldn't say I think. I know a huge chunk of these guys have investments in the marijuana business, but because they have records, they can't be on paper. So right. They're, you know, four or five people removed. The Detroit Mafia almost invented the concept of insulating yourself. Like, it, it took a lot of crime families around the country to kind of get hip to that in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where they started to put front bosses and bosses in front of bosses. And the Detroit guys were doing this back in the 30s, where if a, a major Detroit mob guy was making money on the street, he, he was five people removed from that, from the person that was actually the boots on the ground. So I just think there are probably a ton of legal grows here that are going on with people that are licensed legally, but they're being financed by organized crime. That does get kind of back into that Kaiser Soze, like nobody even knows like who to talk to. Like there's four degrees of separation from the guy. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, he's kind of out there, but you know, who's, who's first, second, third, or fourth. And, and I'll, just, I'll leave you with this anecdote. And I think it, it speaks volumes about uh, the Detroit mobs reach in the business community here in Detroit, the legitimate business community. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a very, very high, high profile Detroit mob figure who I will not name. Um, 
you can do your research on this and find it out yourself. It won't be that difficult. Uh, that sold his business, which was an insurance company, uh, about six or seven years ago, uh, to Ascension Health, which is owned by the Catholic Church. He sold it for like $100 million. And it got zero scrutiny from the local press, from really anybody. But, but you, can read about the, you can read about the acquisition in Crane's business. Uh, so Obvious I mean, red flag, right? You I would mean, think. Yeah. So, you know, so this, was, this was a huge, huge business transaction that, again, got written up in Crane's, but just no mention of who the person that was doing the selling was. And then you ask yourself, the Catholic Church, I mean, they didn't do their due diligence? Like, how did that happen? And I've heard that there were some things that might have even reached the Vatican uh, with, with how that deal went. It's un- unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so I'll finish with this just real quick personal question. You've, you've covered this stuff for years. You've talked about people. In, in that case, just now you didn't want to name somebody. These people have to know who you are. They all are. know who I am. Have you ever had someone pull you aside and say, knock it off, Scott, you're going to end up in a dumpster? Um, I've only had, in 15 years, I've only had two incidents where I got really spooked. Or I should say three. Three incidents where I got spooked. One was uh, I was getting texts from prison. And at that time, I didn't, it didn't make sense to me. I was like, wait, how is this person? T-? Now I realize that they can smuggle cell phones into prison. But at the time, I didn't understand how this gangster was texting me at night, telling me to stop writing what I was writing. And that, that spooked me out. I was like, wait, wait, A, how does he have my number? And B, how am I getting texts from this guy? He's locked up. For, he's, in, he's in prison for the rest of his life. How is he texting me? Was there an or else this will happen or was it just? No, it was just like, stop doing it. And so I did. did. Yeah, (laughs) I did. Yeah. Um, Another incident was, and let me also say, none of these incidents where I was spooked uh, came from the Italian mafia. I I consider myself an expert on organized crime in general. Uh, I know just as much about black organized crime, Middle Eastern organized crime, Mexican organized crime, Irish, Jewish, and what have you. Um, so none of this actually came from the Italians. Uh, I got called to a meeting once where I was threatened about an article that I wrote, um, kind of uh, threatened without being threatened. I had a, a guy that was upset with me putting his name in the paper and tying him to an old murder. Um, I had known this guy before. He had called me to this meeting. I thought we were, everything was copacetic. I showed How did up. You take that meeting. I'm fair because I because I had been talking to him about other about doing some projects together. Oh, okay. Uh, I'd be terrified if I got yeah. called to a mob meeting after I'd written negative. No, shit no, I did no. And his his cousin was brokering the meeting, and his cousin I trusted had my back. Was and he did. And he did. No, it was not an Andiamo. <laughs> okay. Uh, and yeah, so this guy sat across from me and pulled out the article and basically said, like, you need to stop writing this. You're reopening a lot of old wounds and you're, and you're, you're asking, you know, you're, you're writing a lot of stuff and bringing up about a, a lot of old dirty laundry that's upsetting people. And if you know what's good for yourself, you'll, you'll stop doing that. And again, I, it's not, it ain't worth ending up in a box, you know, for me, like, 
there are certain things that I just, I don't need to write about if they're going to be dangerous. I, I, and frankly, did you feel that was a legitimately dangerous situation? Yes. yes. Okay. And what, there was a third. Uh, so the third was a very, very notorious African-American gangland figure who, if people watch the show power, um, this guy has been described as Detroit's own version of ghost. And I'm actually really close with this guy in as close as you can get to a person like that. Um, but there was a period of time where his mind was kind of playing tricks on him in prison. He was on trial for murder. And he thought that I was giving information to the government and he sent me a letter from prison. And in the letter he said, you know, I'm a serious man or, you know, I'm a serious individual, which I took to mean, you know, I'm a murderer. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's no other way. Right. Yeah. And that freaked me out. But then I smoothed things over with him really quickly and everything's good now. I'm glad. But, uh, wow. so those were three incidents with the Italians. I know they're not thrilled with me. Uh, I've had some meetings with their attorneys. One asked me if I would remove something I'd written about his son because his son was having difficulty getting a job. Uh, it was no, I was I was within my rights to write about his son because his son had been convicted of bookmaking, and that's what I that's what I wrote. I didn't say the son was a murderer or a gangster. I just said he was a bookie. Um, but I guess the son was having difficulty getting jobs, and his dad, who is a very high ranking mob guy, um, unlike his son who isn't, but did get caught booking bets. Uh, he his father, the high ranking mobster, through his attorney, asked me to remove the article, which I did. I shouldn't say remove the article. I removed his name from the article. Um, and I have, I've had some um, face-to-face interactions with Jackie Jackaloni, who's the reputed mob boss of Detroit, uh, the one we're talking about here with Phil Mickelson and Dandy Don and Alan Health, uh, probably about a half dozen in 15 years. He's always cordial when I see him. I'll shake his hand and say, how you doing? Uh, we'll never, you know, he'll never talk shop with me, uh, but he's never, you know, motherfucked me in public. Um, he lives in West Bloomfield. So I've run into him at Starbucks. Uh, I, the first time I saw him was at Barnes and Noble. I actually went and introduced myself. Um, and I heard that I heard from someone, I, I, I later told that story to someone and he was like, he's like, I know they like, Jackie called me right after you left. Like, so like he like you know, scary too, but, um, I, I had heard, I've heard from a couple people that, uh, Jackie's made some. I don't want to say threat, but like, you know, Bernstein needs to watch what he's writing or something. You got a lot more balls than I do because I yeah. mean, I got to say, I have said horrible things about Al Avila. I've never been called to a meeting where Al Avila oh. held, <laughs> held, held up something and, and threatened to put me in a box. And so. Al Avila is not a convicted murderer or someone that's been suspected in well, murder. I'm, I'm dealing in a much shallower yeah. pool. You know, the, these people I can handle. I mean, I think I'm a tough guy, but it's, I'm with you. Hey, you want me to take down that mean video, Al? If you threaten to put me in a box and you and you got mob ties, but yeah, I mean, well, just to me, I mean, really, there were a couple things that I was writing about and that were really interesting to me and were upsetting people, and I'm just like, it's just not worth it. Like, if I was being paid a million dollars to write about this stuff, maybe it would be worth it, but like, I wasn't, so I'm just yeah. like, it's not worth the aggravation. I can't. I just your stories, man. I I don't want to keep you too long. We'll wrap there, but I'd love to have you back. Yeah, I could I could go 30 hours with you like I, I'm as wrapped as I was two hours ago. Like, 
And then You're if you want, I mean, guy. I'm, uh, you know, I'm getting uh, kind of uh, championing myself here. Yeah. But if you want, you know, I wear another hat uh, that some people know me as. I'm a college football and basketball recruiting guy around here. I do a lot of reporting on on prospects that are being uh, scouted by Michigan, Michigan State, Notre Dame, what have you. If you ever want to do like a signing day, who Michigan State's got coming down the pike, I'd love to come on and give you my uh, analysis of of future Spartans. And that's more our bread and butter. That puts us in that 90%. Yeah. So that's actually so I, more apropos. I love, I love the fact that people in my recruiting world have no idea that I write about crime. People in my crime world have no idea I write about recruiting. And then sometimes you find this, this, uh, this dovetailing where you're writing about a gangster's son who's a football or basketball recruit. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's I, you got to love the intersection, like the Venn yeah. diagram, yeah. you get in the center of the Venn diagram. Uh, but. uh, I heard a story. Um, I shouldn't say heard a story. I, I'll, I'll leave this. I guess we'll leave with this one anecdote. Uh, Ronnie Bellamy, who is, uh, the new assistant coach at university of Michigan. He was the West Bloomfield held coach, uh, state champ for the last 10 years, won a state championship. He called me a couple of years ago and uh, threw a name at me. He's like, Scott, now you know, this guy, and I was like, yeah. I was like, how do you know him? He's like, well, his son's playing for me. And uh, he just showed up in my office, uh, him and his wife. And, uh, oh, i sorry. He said the wife showed up at his office and was like, hey, man, if you don't, basically, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, if you don't give Junior more playing time, like, seniors, seniors going to be coming to see you. Jack Maloney? No, it was, uh, it was an African-American. Um, oh, okay. Uh, drug dealer that had just got out of prison and his son was playing on the defensive line for uh, Ronnie and Ronnie's like, you know who this guy is? I was like, yeah. <laughs> well, not going to mess around. So right. you, you're in these, you're in these more intimidating crowds. <laughs> I, I feel like I can handle Al Avila, but I'm not, I'm not going to deal with the Jack Maloney family or the, the, any of the families you've dealt with. You know, stay, just don't go to the stage in the morning and you'll avoid, uh, you'll avoid Jack. Really? So I can see him if I want yeah, to? Yeah, you go to the stage, uh, you know, 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. He's in the same, he's been sitting, you know, he's been going to lunch there for 30 years. So if I went up to him and was like, hey, I'm Big Scott Burns. <laughs> fan, I, yeah. yeah He'd be like, yeah, I don't like that kid. <laughs> we'll, we'll test that. Dude. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. It'll, it'll be funny to have you back in a like, completely different context. But, but anything related to, to crime, uh, you know, uh, crime and, and Detroit sports or, you know, there's, there's, more cross-section than you would think. Um, you know, I would love to come back on it and chat. Would you like to, before we cut out, apologize for ruining my vision of Isaiah, Isaiah Thomas? Thomas? Myself, too. <laughs> and again, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to cast, you know, fa uh, false dispersions or, or uh, yeah. he's never been charged. The, the federal government came out and said that he was not the target of the investigation that he went and testified uh, for at that grand jury. But at the same time, I do know that the FBI and the NBA investigated those those allegations of point shaving um, never got past an investigation, yep. but they were investigated. I am going to be so I, I don't know. It's 1130 now. I don't know if I'll be getting to bed until about three because you, you got me. I want it. What's the Chester Bennett that I get? There? Chester Campbell. Chester Campbell. Chester Campbell. I got to research. I got to research. this bad. There's actually a whole book about Chester Campbell. I, I'm going to, I'm going to read the whole book tonight. After I get through, I just bought your uh, crime book. Uh, one of the Detroit crime, crime, crime Chronicles. Yeah. I bought it on Kindle. So I have that loaded up. We're going to read that, but uh, it was awesome to have you. I'd love to have you back. Uh, just incredible depth of knowledge. I'm fascinated. I could listen to you go all night. So thank you for joining us. And can I shout out where people can uh, find me? Yeah. I was just going to say, if you have anything to plug or any show you're doing, like, please, you know, where we can find you if they want to get more of you. 
So uh, Twitter, Bernie's tweets, B-U-R-N-E-Y-S-T-W, or sorry, I can't even spell my own Twitter handle, B-U-R-N-E-Y-T-W-E-E-T-S, Bernie's tweets. Um, I also have my own web magazine called Gangster Report, www.gangsterreport.com. Um, if you're interested in the, in the cross-section between the mob and sports, I have a whole uh, uh, category on my website that is, you know, talking about the confluence of, of organized crime and professional sports. You can click on that and you can read about 30 or 40 stories I've written o- uh, over the last eight, seven, eight years. Um, there's actually just something that came out of Cleveland recently with Bernie Kosar, uh, who's going to bat for this famous Cleveland uh, Irish gangster who's trying to get out of prison. And Bernie Kosar went to, went to the federal judge uh, a week or two ago and said, if you let this guy out, he can come stay at my house. Oh my so there's all, you know, you, if you're not paying attention, you don't know it's there, but there, there's more cross section than, than you would know. And I'm always trying to keep my finger on the pulse of it. So check out gangster report. And then I have my own podcast uh, called the original gangsters podcast. We call it the OG. You can consume it wherever podcasts are consumed and uh, look for some more things. I got, uh, I'm making a transition. I'm trying to transition into more television film content. Uh, I've been working out in LA for the last couple of years, got a couple things in the hopper, something hopefully uh, that's about to be announced, uh, that will be on HBO max. So stay tuned for that. And, you know, hopefully I'll have, uh, you know, as many, uh, you know, many things going forward and, and I can come share with you guys and, and keep repping Detroit. Cause all I want to do out there, I tell whenever I'm out in, in LA and people ask me what I want to do, I say, I want to tell stories from my hometown. I want to become the way that Ben Affleck and Mark Alt Wahlberg and, and Matt Damon are the guys that tell the Boston stories. Not that I ever want to be a matinee idol. I couldn't be, but I, I want to be the guy that's bringing all the great Detroit stories to Hollywood and then getting those stories made into, you know, television and films. I hope you will accept the invitation to return, but if you don't, I will find you in a parking lot and <laughs> okay. stuff you in the car. I will not let you retrieve your gun first. Yeah, I will just drag you down here. We, we won't shoot you. But this is awesome, by the way. Like I, I you know, oh, I'm I so glad it. I got to meet you and come on here. I, I, again, I love what you're doing, and just really uh, honored and pleased to be a part of it. Well, this I appreciate that, and this was the uh, culmination of what we were saying before the show. We have like 150 mutual friends. Yeah. Somehow never crossed paths, so this is like the final like completion of my social circle is meeting you and and talking to you. So it was a pleasure. Love to have you back. Thanks, man. Uh, thank you again to the Land Shark for sponsoring tonight's episode. It is my favorite place to go. Check them out now if you're watching live. Land Sharks open until 2 a.m. and maybe you'll see the governor there with like 17 of her friends. Uh, This was the Spiro Avenue Show, episode number 37 with Scott M. Bernstein. We will be back in a few days with a two-man panel. John Wharton making his third appearance. Longtime uh, Red Wings trainer for years, was there for three of the Stanley Cups. And my good friend James Gorman will be sitting next to him, the funniest guy I know by far. He's in town from North Carolina in two days to baptize my son, actually. He is the chosen godfather, speaking of the mafia. So uh, check us out Friday night, John Wharton, James Gorman, Justin Spiro. We got a lot coming. I got a big event on the 24th with Jalen Watch Jackson. I'm, I'm excited. This has been a fun month for us, and uh, we'll be chopping it up with you I soon. nicknamed Jalen Watts Jackson back when he was 16, the notorious JWJ. You, you were ahead of the So game. please ask him about that. Say, remember Bernstein gave you the nickname, the, the notorious JWJ? Do you think he'll know what I'm talking uh, yes, about? Yes. He's sure a he great would. guy. When I pitched this idea to him, we're unveiling this giant yeah. painting that's going on the wall right outside the studio here. 
I thought the guy was going to think I was like the biggest loser oh, ever. Oh, good guy, dude. I'm telling you, again, another <laughs> kid I know since, and he's not a kid anymore, but I knew him since he was 15, 16. Uh, he also was a good, bas- or a good basketball player. And uh, I, I got nothing but great things to say about him. And all those guys that come from Orchard Lake St. Mary's and George Porritt and uh, that program put out some, they just put out great athletes and great young men, uh, student athletes and, and guys that really represent the community. Him and guys like him and Alan, Alan Robinson and KJ. Hamler and uh, there's just so many of those guys that have come out of that program and are doing great things now. Something, something's and going J- on. And, and JWJ would have, you know, if he doesn't break his hip, I mean, who knows what happens? Yeah. I mean, he was the beginning of his career yeah. there and you know, that's a catastrophic injury, but yeah, he's been a pleasure. It's been a fun month for us uh, so far. And we just got started in July, a lot coming down. I'm excited. I appreciate all you guys. You know, we've had a great linear growth here. It's really to the audience and appreciate you. And uh, before I go, I got to say, Ben Augusta on the other side of the wall, the great and powerful Oz behind the curtain there doing a great job as always. And of course, we would be remiss to forget to mention Eric Williamson, our set designer, graphic designer, who is definitely at this hour on his couch in his boxers watching. So thank you to Eric. Thank you to you guys. Thank you again to Scott and Bernstein. Love to have you back. We'll see you soon. Bureau Avenue Show, episode 37. We'll see you on Friday. Thank you.